Part two is here. did some mescaline is my number seven leave no trace um so i talked about how this was the first year that it felt like films were addressing what it meant to live in 2018 and this at its core is a really really stirring amazing story of a mentally ill father um with you know he has ptsd and you know god knows what else and it is and he can't actually comprehend what's happening to him. He can't put it into words. He can't work it out. He is absolutely lost into himself, and the only thing he feels he can do is retreat from the world and live out in the wilderness. And because he has a daughter, he is going to raise her that way. And that's not... And he... There, there, that could... In some ways, this is a story of abuse. In some ways, this is a story hmm. of a father who is completely irresponsible and is not doing what is right for his child. And, but it is not, he's not selfish. I mean, he's acting selfishly, but they, they have a warm relationship. He does care about her. He does. It is important to him that she feel comfortable. It is important to him that she be happy and feel safe. Um, you know, we see the very first scene he's, you know, training her in survivalist ways and, you know, he's correcting her mistakes, but he isn't the taciturn taskmaster father, um, he is very warm to her and her alone, but it's just like that's not a safe situation to raise a child in. Um, and the thing that happens early on in this movie, which is is kind of expected, is though they've been living in this state park, um, I think in Washington, um, they're somewhere in the Pacific yeah. Northwest. Um, it might be Northern California. They they've been living in this state park. The cops find out that they've been there. They get taken in. They get sort of processed as part of the system. His story uh, makes the newspapers and someone reaches out to like sponsor him basically and give him a chance to start a life in a rural area but as part of society. Like it's he's working on a farm. He's like living in a small guest house on a ranch that he is working. It's a Christmas tree ranch and it is her – one of the first times she gets to actually interact with other people. And the thing that is remarkable about this movie is this movie could easily be about the cruelty of the system and about the cruelty of uh, the world that doesn't understand them and doesn't care and terrible things happen to them. But instead, this is a movie about supportive communities and a movie in which every person they encounter, other than the cops, because fuck the cops, every person they encounter wants what's best for them and wants to help them and understands where they're coming from and wants to help bridge that gap. Whether it's the religious service they attend, whether it's the man who sponsors them, at some point they take off and leave and they find a helpful trucker who's willing to take a chance on them giving a ride even though he can't know for sure that she's not a kidnap victim or whatever. Like, and it, like everyone in the end is helping and supporting each other and to me, that is where this movie gets extremely interesting as far as a movie about 2018 because we live in a world where there is going to be a, a massive die-out. There is going to be rising sea levels that cause um, 
refugee communities that you know are greatly higher than what exists already in the world now. We are going to live in a time of displacement and a time of extreme weather and a time where nothing is no safety is guaranteed and the only thing that will get us through it if anything will at all is communities like turning to each other and helping each other out and share and share alike and the belief that it is more important to help other people than it is to get yours and that is what this movie is about it presents a lone survivalist male who is very capable and who maybe has a lot of very impressive skills about being in the wilderness but it also dismantles that romantic narrative mm-hmm. and that is a romantic narrative when we yeah. watch like even something like first blood it's exciting and you like to imagine like what if i was out in the wilderness and like would i be able to you know collect rainwater and do it like it's a very romantic idea that you're self sufficient it's like the idea that like westerns are de- dealt on it's a it is a fantasy that is sold and that's not necessarily a bad thing because lots of great, you know, fun movies are sold on these sort of fantasies, but it is not reality. And this movie very gently dismantles that fantasy while never pointing an accusing finger at the man who's inside of it, a man who genuinely is traumatized and genuinely cannot do much better than he is. Um, the performances are incredible. I'm Generally not a fan of Ben Foster. I think he's amazing in it. Um, It's a really, really good movie. I think the filmmaking itself is a little... It's an indie movie. Like, it's... It doesn't have the sort of formal rigor of, like, a Kelly Reichard film or something like that. And there's not necessarily any one scene that I completely shook me or took me by surprise. That's, like, the only reason it's not higher. But I think it's a really terrific movie and it's a really terrific 2018 movie on top of that good points yeah i I think it shares some themes with shoplifting shoplifters yes absolutely Uh, because again this one also asks you know what what is a family and i think for me what was most interesting was where i was uh, throughout the film on the scale of should this father and daughter remain together Mm -hmm. even though through no intention of his own, through through his actions, he's putting her in more and more danger. She is growing up. She is becoming more aware of that and also becoming more aware of a life outside of this very strange survivalist mode that, that her father's put her in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, on the one hand, you know, you don't want these, you, you know, you want these two to be able to be compatible in some way, but it, it, as the movie goes on, it seems like that becomes less and less possible. Mm-hmm. And then as they're taken in by out, other people outside their family, and and you see how familiar, familiar, but excuse me, I can't speak, uh, family bonds yeah. <laughs> can form without blood relations, but just of people being kind to each other. It, it, it's a really interesting progression that this film makes, you know, helped by these two extraordinary performances. It is, I think it is very easy to make a film that is cynical. And that doesn't mean that it, it's bad, that cynical or um, pessimistic films are not as valid. But, like, something that is remarkable about Leave No Trace is that it offer it 
there's a lot of films like like for example like Sorry to Bother You is sort of like this as well. Um, there's a lot of films that point out the problems. It's mm-hmm. much like a Spike Lee never offers reasonable solutions to anything. That's not what he's about. That's not do the right thing does not end with and here's how this can change. Do the right thing is about examining the failures. And like I think all of his films are about sort of how intractable some problems are. And I think that's absolutely valid. And I do think that we live in a world of several absolutely intractable problems. But like I think it takes a lot of guts to offer alternatives to provide examples of all of these other communities that could exist that aren't she goes and lives in the suburbs and goes to a public school and like <laughs> like all like all the shit that he is against it does not instantly say well he's he has this he's you know, wrong he's traumatic he's traumatized so he's wrong and it's yeah. also not a oh well damned if you do damned if you don't like there is a generosity of spirit to leave no trace that i find really captivating i completely agree with that and i I always like viewed, you know, into the wild as like the kind of the, oh man, the romanticism of like being on your own completely to where you separate yourself from society and try to make your way, you know, out in the wilderness to some degree. And then of course it's undone and, you know, he manages to not, like he separates himself so much from people that that's his downfall. And in here, you know, he's trying to integrate himself into communities but also realizes I'm just more comfortable with how things were, with how things uh, you know, should be for me and my daughter. But at the same time, he also realizes that his daughter is a separate person, too. Yeah, and I think the fantasy is powerful enough that someone can watch Into the Wild. And it's, I haven't seen Into the Wild since 2007. So for all I know, this is something that Sean Penn is actively doing in the film that I just don't remember. But like, it's easy for someone to watch Into the Wild and think, he just wasn't good enough. At yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. like somewhere there is an ideal way he could have survived it, and right. he could have lived forever out in the wilderness. He just didn't do a good enough job. And this movie isn't about. It's like no, there's not a that this movie very specifically says there there is no good enough. Like he, I don't think it's a happy ending in this movie. Like the next time he breaks his leg, that's just the end of him. Yeah, at much. some right. point, mm-hmm. at some point, the bags that she puts up for him to pick up are going to stop being picked up. And then she will know something terrible has happened, and that will be the end of it. Yeah, until Into the Wild um, shifts near the end, I think it really is glorifying that kind of lifestyle. Sure. And this doesn't do that at all from right. the very beginning. This is, and I think partially it's because we're looking at it through the daughter's eyes, and she's had to live with this kind of lifestyle but she's not she she can psychologically get out of it he's she's not yeah, yeah. trapped the way mm-hmm. her father is and i uh and i and I, I already mentioned it but her performance thomas and mckenzie's performance is just absolutely incredible and like the thing that provides the emotional core for the movie because ben foster is good but ben foster is playing someone who is not emotive at all and so it's not an easy in which is refreshing right. too from him yeah yeah yeah. He's always playing over the top, crazy, uh-huh. manic, weird villain. Yeah, I do think know. this is the best performance I've seen from him. So Excellent. anyway, Leave No Trace is my number seven. Excellent choice, Patrick. My number seven is a, a tiny indie film called Black Panther. <gasps> you may have heard of it. Yeah, you know what? <laughs> mm. I, it's on. Um, uh, what, what's the li- the list of shame? <laughs> yeah, I need to see it. Well, well, I, I'm going to encourage it. I, I think you know it is a popcorn movie. But I think it's uh, the best popcorn movie we, we've gotten this year and maybe maybe in the last few years because mm. it does 
world building like nobody's business. It creates this environment of, of Wakanda that is vivid. And, and yes, it's CGI. And I've often been very critical of films that rely on CGI. But it, but because it's dealing with uh, Afrofuturism and actual uh, visual motifs that, that have been researched from various places in Africa, mm-hmm. through its visuals, its customs, uh, costuming, it really has a, a great sense of place that you don't necessarily associate with uh, comic book movies or, or Marvel movies. You also have uh, a great villain, and Michael B. Jordan. Yeah, Michael Michael B. Jordan uh, plays a, a character from the uh, uh, the streets who you understand his motivation because you're asking yourself as you're looking at why is this society that is so far advanced that has everything at their disposal in scientific technology beyond what the rest of the world has, why have they not tried to help other people outside? And, and you know, being that this is very much an African-American film, why have they not tried to help the African-American community and black communities outside of this fictional country? Mm-hmm. So we, of course, don't agree with his methods. He's still villainous. He's still goes too far but it's fascinating that that they let us relate and that they don't just do a simple good evil dichotomy here now i haven't watched a marvel movie to completion since captain america winter soldier but (laughs) my memory is that pretty much every villain in all their movies are that easy dichotomy of good evil where it's someone trying to take over the world or kill the main character, basically. Yeah, that's the, Marvel's had trouble with its villains, uh, probably except for the Loki character. Um, this year, they've solved it, because with both Killmonger and Thanos in Infinity War, you're really getting complicated, motivation, motivated villain, villains, I'm sorry, villains with the kind of motivation that defies just, you know, simple... Oh, he's the bad guy. He's just being bad because that's what he does. So, you know, you get to see the the history of this family. You get to see other tribes. It's it's even though Black Panther is the hero, it's very much an ensemble piece because you're you're witnessing this you know, entire fictional culture kind of uh, blooming right right there on screen. And we're also getting a chance to question it. Hmm. hmm. There's not a lot of big Hollywood Afrofuturism, and there That's should true. be. So right? That's very true. <laughs> and and you know this this year I have to say, and it's you know we're three white guys saying it, but my God, this year in African American cinema, mm-hmm. and there I, I'm sure there's been so many great movies in the past that maybe I've just missed. But I think looking at my, my top 20, I have uh, six films from black directors. And I'm definitely, definitely there seems to be like a voice that is being heard that needs to be heard. Yeah, I've, my top 10 has several films by black directors that all, they represent a diverse political spectrum, a diverse set of aesthetics, uh, a diverse kind of film, genre. Like yeah, it's it's been a really good year uh, for uh, black directors for sure. Yeah, it's also been a very good year for documentaries too. Has it? Yeah, 
Is Prove there it. an example, perhaps? Prove I, it. I might have an example. <laughs> I challenge you. Uh, it's not one you might be as high on, but it's a film called Minding the Gap. Okay. Yeah. I have not seen this. What's it about? Well, it's on Hulu if you want to check it out, and yeah. that, that message is to all you fine listeners out there as well. If you have a Hulu subscription, please check it out. It's, um, it takes place in Rockford, Illinois, and it follows three individuals going through you know difficult circumstances, poverty, identity crisis. Um, like they're all, they all basically grew up way too fast right out of high school. Um, and it manages to go inward, similarly to Shirkers, because uh, the filmmaker, the director himself, is looking at a particular incident of abuse from his past. And he sort of integrates that into the story as well. Uh, and I just think that, like, this, this filmmaker, Bing Liu, he really captures the energy, the spirit of, you know, just the freedom that these characters have when it comes to uh, skateboarding as their outlet, as their way to, you know, again, create a sense of community amongst one another. Uh, and it's just really an interesting film about these young men who sort of get a little bit bolder and a little bit more open as a result of this camera being there. And he just captures this sense of freedom and creativity that makes their pastime more than a hobby. But it's also just like, you know, in particular one, one of these, one of these gentlemen whose name escapes me, is just, you know, he's not ready to take on fatherhood at his age. He wants to be Zach. Zach. Thank you. A very, very, very restless individual who, you know, would rather just like live life moment to moment without taking on any any modicum of responsibility, and you know we sort of re- see that reflected in in the environment because unfortunately, like Rockford, Illinois, is going through incredible hardship, incredible poverty, incredible just um, a lot of a lot of polis- a lot of political issues taking place there. But I think it's it's you know it's an interesting celebration of skateboarding in a year where we had other movies, Skate Kitchen, mid nineties. And it sort of captures the subculture and the communal feel that all these men sort of create together. But it's also just really painful, really intimate at times. Um, and there's a, a scene late in the film where the director confronts his mother on screen about wh- why why did this happen to me? Why did you let this happen? Why were you with, with this man when you knew this was going on? And she doesn't have any answers. And you know, neither does he. There's a sense of a lack of resolution to every, you know, to every issue that everybody is sort of encountering here. Um, but I just found it really um, enlightening about just you know this in particular environment in Rockford, and I recognize certain people in these characters, um, and it's just a really interesting sort of essay on race, class, and manhood in, in 21st century America. I really thought it was richly observed and fascinating to watch. I wonder how much this, this reminded you of growing up in Indiana. That's a good point. Is, was, this, was your yeah. hometown like Rockford? I would, yeah, I would say so. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like, you know, it, it was lower middle class, more or less. But, I mean, I think we... I managed to create little communities of my own through the arts or through the theater community or through making silly movies with my friends. So yeah, that definitely, that definitely has, there's the personal experience that I had because this director also started videotaping the exploits of 
their friends. You yeah, know, I, I, this made me think of you in a few ways. That was definitely one of them. Was yeah. the was the sort of movies that you used to make um, when you were in high school and the sort of connection to that. Yeah, and and I just I think he's he's a really poignant and vulnerable filmmaker, and also to just put his own. You know, I think that I think the moment too that really got to me was like him and his brother going through the house and sort of like recounting the experience of like I heard this abuse taking place in the room next door, and you know just sort of them confronting that together on screen is really heavy and really um, intense. So I mean, I really liked experiencing all these people's lives, and even when it was really intense, and there's you know certainly um, more abuse that takes place with Zach. In particular, towards his um, towards his wife, mm-hmm. that's really heavy too. Um, and sort of the director wants to bring that out in the film, confronting his friend and also confronting his own past. So I I really like that sort of um, integration between those two scenarios and how he manages to deal with it. Does he confront his friend? I think he tries to. I mean, I think he more or less goes through the wife initially when they're sitting in the car right. together. But the scene, I think he, but the, he the, scene this- the one scene mm-hmm. where it is the film has what I would call a twist, which is it has been about how all these children are victims of abusive like fathers or stepfathers and sort of the abusive men in their lives and how that has affected how they grew up and like what skating meant to them and stuff like that. And there is a twist I'd say about halfway through that one of these Subjects is also a domestic abuser. Yes. And it is sort of the ongoing question from that point on is, is the filmmaker going to confront his friend about this abuse? And I, and did, do you feel he did it? I don't think he necessarily did directly. He, I don't know. I feel like there is a scene though, where he's, you know, um, relating to his friend that I went through some serious abuse as a kid, and I'm making this documentary. Okay, so you don't remember this scene. There's a very specific scene that is the, and here's the thing you've been waiting for, that is, he's interviewing him while he's at his roofer job, and he's, like, sneaking a beer while he's having his lunch or whatever. Right. And he's asking him straight up about whether or not he abused, you know, he's, he's asking about the events of the night that this happened or whatever. And he gets sort of a non-answer. And then that's it. Okay. And it's... I thought that was bad. Especially given that the way the film ends is the... And here's some text to tell you how they're all doing. And they're all doing fine now. Which is like, you are not addressing this. Mm, yeah, kind of sweeping it under the rug. It is... I thought, yeah. I thought it was just one of those things where it's like, well, here's the downside for making a documentary that you are a part of. Like, here's a downside about making your own story into a film, which is that, like, maybe you're not going to have the courage to do the thing that you should do, what the movie's about. Hmm. Um, I thought very early on, it's very clear that this is a movie about the cycle of abuse, about how all their fathers were abused and became abusers. And that was it. They never really went much deeper than that. It was like... It felt like a movie that was less than the sum of its parts. I think any given scene is very good. I think there's a lot of, like, I think the people that are the subjects are very interesting. Yeah. And I think that the way that he connects their stories is very simplistic. 
and it never goes deeper. And that's that was my main like this is my number thirty movie. I thought it was a pretty good movie. I recommended it to people. You know, like I think it's good, and it certainly you know it certainly was very emotional. But like I felt like it was a missed opportunity, and maybe it was just like. Yeah, like at the end, he just it happens, he, and nothing I can do. Well, more so like he, nothing you can do because you are too close to this, and like you're not going to make the choices that you probably should make if you are doing telling the story properly. Hmm. Um, That's some food for thought. I'll have to think about that too. I thought like the most interesting material was I forget his I forget his name, but his black friend sort of realizing that he is like he can't pretend that he isn't black and that that doesn't create a divide between him and all of his white skater friends like yeah. I thought that was a really fascinating thread that went nowhere but I wanted more of mm-hmm. and it, you know it's like it's it, these are weird criticisms to make cuz like a documentary is actually happening so it's not like oh he should have written this story better <laughs> like yeah. you get what you get but like at the end of the day like the style of it, it felt very MTV special. It felt very Teen Mom. It felt very uh, like True Life. I'm a skateboarder. I think it had a lot of energy to it. I, I didn't mind it. I, There's like a few shots where he's on a skateboard and he's holding the camera, but for the most part, it was just sort of like I thought the approach was very whatever. Um, he he's working on a thing, or he worked on a thing with Steve James. So like yes. I guess. That I just started that. It's yeah. called America to Me, and right. it takes place in Oak Park, Illinois. Right. That so I can't like, wait to so, finish. So like he's gonna have. I, I think he has some kind of career after this. Oh like, yeah, I no, I mean, like I, th- this I thought of Steve James watching this. I I hope that the next one he makes, he can not not be from his own life, and maybe that way he won't be sort of hamstrung by it. Okay, yeah, I can see that. I can see that argument. Sure. Um, but like I think any time a documentary filmmaker puts themselves in the movie, you gotta you gotta do that. Like that's such a hard road to walk, and I don't think he did it particularly well. But mm. I did think it was a good movie. Eh, it moved me a lot, and I, yeah, and I, but like the I want people to go home feeling good, so I'm going to tell everyone <laughs> that everyone's doing well now is like really fundamentally sort of not addressing. Mm. And it's maybe it's just like one of those things where it's like, oh, I'm like. I started this thinking I just wanted to make a movie about me and my friends, and now I really can't be friends with this person, but I don't want to betray their trust, so I'm not going to make them look as bad as I could make them. Like, I don't know what it is, but it's just like, it it definitely rubbed me the wrong way, especially given that the topic is domestic violence. Like, the idea that it's like, ah, and then he has a new new girlfriend, and he's doing fine. Like, I don't give a fuck. I don't think he's doing fine. I mean, maybe the film sort of conveys that. It, it tells his story this way. It tells everyone else's story at the end with the text. Like it doesn't. Im- it's not counterbalanced. The like it's not like the, everyone else is doing fine and Zach is, you know. And yeah. but other than you know, like it doesn't. It sort of implies that they could still be friends, which is like a. I'm not saying a little, they a are questionable. Okay, yeah. But yeah, I'm. I'm just saying I found that choice very questionable, and in general, I found it a little underwhelming as as far as the filmmaking goes. Oh. Okay. Anyway. We should read a list. Whose turn is it? I think it's Brad's turn. It might be mine. Yeah. Corey Pierce. This might be from Corey Pierce. Great guy. Whose number 10 is Blind Spotting. Number 9, Bad Times at the El Royale. Number 8, Hereditary. 7, Black Klansman. 6, Spider Man Into the Spider Verse. 5, First Reformed. 4, The Favorite. 
Three, our favorite, Annihilation. <laughs> two, Paddington 2. Yay. And one, sorry to bother you. Do you think people like Annihilation because it's a bad Predator movie, or do they like it because it's a bad Denis Villeneuve movie? <laughs> oh, which oh. bad movie part of it do you think they like? Probably the, the most? latter. Okay, probably. I think it promises a lot. Yes. Yeah, and it doesn't deliver. Right. You know what it does deliver? Cool sound. That music at the end. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> <Music> In the <laughs> lighthouse. <laughs> Fucking awesome, man! I. I did not like this movie at all. I re-rented it and rewatched it because I saw a trailer on a different DVD that had that music in it. I was like, <laughs> this movie can't be that bad. It has this music in it. It's probably great, but no. Yeah! All right, Brendan Day. <laughs> you, again, you got real nervous there for a second. How did I get nervous? I don't You got made this face where you're like, stop talking bad about movies people like. <laughs> no, it's, no, it's okay. I don't mind. I, I didn't like the movie, so I agree. Yeah. Brendan Day. I really enjoyed listening to this podcast. I learned so much about these directors, and it's introduced me to so many great films. Thank you for everything. Here is my top ten. Number ten is Searching. Number nine is The Miseducation of Cameron Post. Uh, number eight is Beautiful Boy. Number seven is Black Klansman. Number six is Mission Impossible Fallout. Number five is A Quiet Place. Number four is Eighth Grade. Number three is Avengers Infinity War. Number two, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. And number one, First Man. I'm going to go ahead and read Matt Miller just oh, to get one man. more out of the way. Matt oh, Miller's man. are not, I don't think, particularly ordered. No. So I'll just say his, his films are Roma, To All the Boys I've Loved Before, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, Black Klansman, The Favorite, Isle of Dogs, Suspiria, Solo, a Star Wars movie, <gasps> your favorite Ooh. there, Brad, yeah, right. Black Panther... <laughs> He spelled Black Panther the way he spelled Black Klansman. That's, that's, kind, of, that's kind of hysterical. <laughs> that's pretty good. And uh, Crazy Rich Asians. My favorite, my favorite Michael Mann movie is Black Hat, but three K's in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, where, where are we? Yeah, six. It's my number six. Speaking six. of documentaries, my number six is Hale County this morning, this evening. Oh, right. Now, now we're talking. I don't really see the Deborah Stratman... Like Deborah Stratman's films are essays, and this is yeah. not that. And like, I think that's just They're like more it feels and- right. They feel like very abstract, sort of intellectual essays, and this sure. feels like a very different thing. Um, there is stuff I don't like about this movie. I might as well get that out of the way now. I think this movie tries way too hard to be experimental, and I think a lot of those touches just don't work. Like, there's just like, oh, it's someone leaping up because someone made a shot in a basketball game, but it's in slow motion. And it's like, there. it's not that interesting. There's sort of text intertitles that don't... They, they're trying to bring out political ideas in the material that don't do as good of a job as the material itself. Mm-hmm. And... Um, it's. It feels like it's trying very hard to be distinctive and to be, um, and and to be experimental in a way that doesn't really work a lot of the time. But at its best, this is like the full uh, worthy successor to like early or Errol Morris. Like, there's so much material in this that I would compare to like the best material in Gates of Heaven, which I would sure. say the best material in Gates of Heaven is like the best material in any documentary. There is so there are so many absolutely fascinating moments of grace. There are things that people say about the experiences they're having that are so unexpectedly eloquent and moving and it and it's 
the thing about a lot of uh, films, whether they're nonfiction or fiction, about sort of lower class life is that they depict its people as sort of inarticulate, which is not really the true story. Like, people who are lower class are generally less educated, so their vocabulary will be different, and, like, the you... You're not always going to have the full context of, like, you probably haven't been in, you know, if you can't afford therapy, you're not necessarily going to have these, I, you know, knowledge of these ideas about what's happening to you psychologically or whatever. But, like, they know what their life is, and they're able to talk about their life in a way that cuts right to the core of it. Yeah. Um, there's, like, a line in this where a guy is talking about his job, and he just says, I'm making enough money to get to work. And, like... That to me is low wage work, like in a nutshell. That is for sure. That is the problem with labor in America and through the world. Like making enough money to get to work is the empty life that is promised you uh, when you are doing, you know, low wage unskilled labor. And like that to me is like such an amazing line. I I wrote down um, my favorite. It's almost a monologue. It's. So the film is is very impressionistic. It's a lot of glances at Hale County, Hale County Alabama. Um, it's I think it was filmed over the course of a couple years, mm-hmm. and it is very much uh, just sort of. It feels like you're just there and living these lives and observing them, yeah. right? And I think this is the filmmaker is a was a high school teacher in the area. I think that was yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, you're right. Um, I'm, I don't know the full story, but like, I believe that's the case. So this is his life as well. I believe like mm-hmm. this is not an outside observer. This feels like someone who is capturing the world that they live in, and that to me is an important distinction. But anyway, so one of these scenes, it's taking place in some sort of uh, classroom setting where adults. I don't know if it's a night school or uh, a GED program or something, but they're talking about. Poverty, and they're talking about uh, um, life, uh, impoverished life, and this guy has this absolutely stream of consciousness, amazing speech, and he says, "As a city kid, every year I came down here. It was a joy to take my shoes off and run on the red clay. It was a joy to go hunting. It was a joy when I was taught how to wring a chicken's neck, or how when I got sick with strep throat, my mom put the bark, my grandmother took the bark of a tree and split it and boiled it with tar and put it on my neck. And the next day, I was running around like I was crazy. You know, it was a joy to pick pecans. To me, it's the emphasis. You know, what is really poor and impoverished, and like." <laughs> that to me says way way more than any like artsy time lapse photography or like inserted footage from a silent film of blackface or like like that to me this movie is full of these little moments of absolutely burning insight um definitely and i think despite himself uh, <laughs> ramel ross uh made an incredible film um and i think like just sort of I I do appreciate it might be a little bit more in the Frederick Wiseman school where there's no there's I think you know people realize that they're being filmed there's one scene in particular where a kid just has unlimited energy and he's just running back and forth and back and forth and this and it's just one interrupted shot and the go it goes on for like 5 minutes and he and you're like how is this he's like 4 year old still running this is insane and he like runs right up to the camera and he like breathes <laughs> in it and like gets it all out of focus and fucks it up and like so there, it's not necessarily fly on the wall and that no one knows the camera's there. I haven't seen – the only 
Frederick Wiseman scene, a film I've seen is Titty Cut Folly. So I don't know how often people make eye contact with the camera in his film. It, hardly ever. And, and also, just briefly, Titty Cut Folly is, is very much not in the style he would eventually okay. develop. Sure. Okay, sure. Yeah, it's an early film, so that makes mm-hmm. sense. But um, it is more fly on the wall. And I think even though some of the choices that uh, – um, sorry, just forgot his name again. Some of the choices that Ramel Ross makes didn't really work for me. I think in general, like this was the right way to do it. It was not to interview someone in the town to be like, we, you know, this is what our poverty level is like. This is, you know, like this is what the industries used to be. Instead, you just hear people talking about working at the catfishing factory and sort of the physical toll it's taken on their bodies. Um, but like they don't, they're not addressing the camera, they're telling another person a story about their life where that becomes, that's an important fact because that's a fact of their life. You know, like the movie, it does a really good job of capturing this community in glancing sort of sideways uh, looks. Um, And I just thought, I thought it was really incredible. Um, And I'm really excited to see what Ramel Ross does next. Excellent choice. Definitely one of my favorites as well. Oh boy. What are you doing? Now we move on to my number six. Mm -hmm. The Other Side of the Wind. <gasps> the long, built-up, long-awaited Orson Welles film. And for those of you who, who don't know the background, it, it's storied. Orson Welles uh, spent a career basically at war with the studios, where so many of his projects were never completed or completed in a way that was compromised. And still he made masterpiece after masterpiece. But near the end of his career, uh, as you head into the 70s, Uh, He started shooting Other Side of the Wind from about 1970 through the middle of the decade Mm. and through a complicated series of uh, ornery situations. The the film stock ended up inaccessible. He was never able to complete the movie during his lifetime. And in recent years, uh, a number of filmmakers, Peter Bogdanovich uh, being a key one who's also in the movie, uh, came to, basically got the rights back, put this movie together. Probably it's 30% uh, Orson Welles' vision. This is what uh, one of the fellows at the uh, screening who was involved in, in the, the compilation said. There was about 30% Orson Welles, 70% everyone else trying to recreate Orson Welles' vision. And they do it spectacularly. It is a very interesting looking film, uh, there's two sections of it. There is the story of this egomaniacal director, kind of at the end of his rope, played by John Huston. And then there's the film within the film, which is kind of this Antonioni-like art film, but an art film from the late 60s or early 70s. So he, one of the funny things about it is that he's constantly being a self-critic in this saying, are you just an old filmmaker trying to be cool with the youth? And that's kind of what the movie is trying to do with, with the film within a film, which has elements that almost predict MTV and has these just amazing shots that you would never necessarily know that Orson Welles would get to, but he's been, clearly paying attention to what's been going on in the film world, the French new wave, everything going on in the late seventies, I'm sorry, late sixties and early seventies. Uh, 
And then you have and and the the film within a film is widescreen, and then the kind of documentary style. Everyone is going to this party where the film is going to be screened, and that's done in a different full screen aspect ratio. There's a lot of quick cutting. Some of it's in black and white. Some of it's in color. It's exciting filmmaking, but it does look like filmmaking from the period. <laughs> It was from. It's nearly found footage. It, 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 it gives that impression. Yes. Not every shot in the film is attributed to like a camera that's held by a character, but like mm-hmm. a lot of it is. Right, because at this party, everyone's got a camera, and even one person is like, "Well, should I stop uh, stop shooting?" It's like, "Well, if you do, everyone else will get this anyway, so we might as well get it out there." It also fits in with one of Wells's constant themes, which is the betrayal of friendship. Because um, John Huston's director has all these acolytes and hangers-on and people who have made careers off his name or are just there kissing his ass. And he's becoming more and more distant from these people, who he, some of whom he considers like they owe him more loyalty than they've shown. So that's a very Wells theme if, if you watch a lot of Orson Welles. Um, do you... How comfortable do you feel the fact that he is the sole attributed director of this film? It, it, it is incorrect to yes. say that he is the sole director. He, and I get why they did it. He is the name. It is something that honors his memory. Mm-hmm. But I think we do need to be clear that this is not the film that Orson Welles completed. This is the film that Orson Welles started and all sorts of, of other people came in throughout the decades mm-hmm. to try to, to, to make this actually and it happen. Is, and it is like there is a, even uh, a brief framing device that is clearly digital in terms of it's – there's like photographs that are zoomed in on. And like it looks – it's meant to look very – to contrast with the rest of the film, which was obviously shot in the 70s and shot on film stock. Mm-hmm. And it has narration by Peter Bogdanovich referencing smartphones, stuff like that. So it's like clearly this isn't a touch of evil situation where every change that was made was his recommendation. Like there is some interpret mm-hmm. – there's a, a quite a bit of interpretation going on. Very much so. Yeah. And, and I think someone like Peter Bogdanovich would have had a good feeling sure. about yeah, what Wells would have sense. wanted. But for instance, that opening narration from mm-hmm. Peter Bogdanovich – was originally supposed to be Orson Welles, mm-hmm. but being dead, he was not available to record it. So, you know, it, it's definitely compromised, but uh, in the sense that it's not pure Welles. I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't, but, I don't even want to in, in, infer that that, is, uh, that reflects negatively on the film. I just find the interesting thing about this, especially for a movie that is self-critical, mm-hmm. like once it is... Once you can no longer attribute Orson Welles to be the sole director, it becomes more interesting as metafiction than it does as fiction to me. Like, the film that they have pieced together, they are commenting on the fact that they're piecing together this film posthumously. Like, they're referencing themselves as much as they're referencing Orson Welles, and they're referencing (laughs) the nature of the film. Yeah, it it exists. You can watch it in so many different ways. You could Mm -hmm. watch it uh, for the Wells themes. You could watch it for the uh, innovative... Innovative uh, filmmaking. It certainly has the uh, fiction, nonfiction, Mm -hmm. challenging uh, challenge of like effort fake. 
Yes, it, yeah. it, although it's 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 more chaotic. Yeah, no, and, absolutely. And, and also, I mean, the, the uh, film within a film is pretty sexually explicit, mm-hmm. which is very unusual for Wells, and mm-hmm. uh, that that uh, is uh, partially the vision of his then uh, life partner Oja Kador, mm-hmm. who was uh, someone more from the art world and who right. was very comfortable with her own nudity. And you know, and and then you have all these things about like what what is he trying to say about real people back in the day? Because you have this uh, young actor that he brings in that he that he eventually humiliates and uh, he walks off the set. You have a critic that's that's supposed to be some kind of version of Pauline Kale who gets into to conflicts. And then you have. The Bogdanovich relationship itself, which, which is play, yeah. like very much, he is playing himself. Yes, yeah, it's it's fascinating. I, I I'm curious. Did you see this in theaters or do you see this on Netflix? Both. I, okay. I saw it at the uh, at the Chicago Film Festival mm-hmm. and, and 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 then again uh, as we got ready to record a we are, we are doing a. Uh, Bonus episode <gasps> on other side of the wind oh, that oh, will be coming out later this month. Hmm. I hated this movie, but like I respect the hell out of it. <laughs> it's just yeah. like it is so much, and it was just too much. It felt like I was attending five bad parties at once. <laughs> it's yeah. like, like it maybe, and it. I think it is one of those things that you know, you know, five years from now, after I've read a bunch of Wells biographies and seen all of his work, and have a better idea of the sort of metafiction of it and like the context. Like I think I could find this movie really great and fascinating. But it was absolutely impenetrable to me. But like, I totally respect this being on your list. Right, and I'm a Wells super fan, yeah, so yeah, to put, yeah. keep that in mind. So you like this is for you exactly, and and how it plays for someone who doesn't mm-hmm. know Wells, I can't really say. But there is also on Netflix a documentary called "They'll Love Me When I'm Dead," right? Actually, made by the same documentarian who did uh, "Won't You Be My Neighbor," mm-hmm. and it goes into all the backstory and interviews and and makes some kind of. No, uh, I mean I think the film it makes sense internally, but it, it it clarifies the context of the film, which I think is helpful in appreciating it. Yeah, I that's that sounds that sounds right. Um, it's yeah, it's it's interesting as a. Like there, <laughs> as far as like Netflix likes to keep Netflix basically does not care about film history and does not like Netflix. If it wanted to, could be amazing stewards of film history and mm-hmm. have they have so much money and so much power to present films that came out before 1987 and they just choose not to for almost the most part. So like as they're sort of stepping their foot into being. So I don't I don't know where the project originated exactly, um, but like it's a fascinating thing. <laughs> well, I think that Netflix provided the final final bit of funding right. and the distribution. Right. Yeah, it's so strange. I'm happy, with Netflix I'm, happy it, that, I'm happy it exists, but it is just it is such a bizarre yeah. thing. Yeah, Netflix is strange because they're kind of like the good Ted Turner and the bad Ted yes. Turner. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> Ted Turner pissed every cinephile out by colorizing uh-huh. his uh, yeah. movies. Even Orson Welles said, keep, keep Ted Turner and his Crayolas away from my damn movie. 
And then he did TCM, probably the mm-hmm. best outlet mm-hmm. yeah. for film yeah. on cable. Absolutely, yeah. And, and Netflix is doing the same thing. So they're releasing Roma, and they're releasing Other Side of the Wind and making these projects happen. And then they're doing their weird distribution thing, which is making everyone nervous and is just completely anti-the-theater experience, mm-hmm. even with things that they create that need the theater experience. <laughs> it's it, Yeah, it's... I don't, like... I've I've talked about this a lot, I think, with, like, Bill Ackerman. But, like, I am so fascinated by the future of cinema as more and more things go to streaming because something that has always driven Hollywood is focus testing. Mm -hmm. And no one has the bio – like, no one has the the data on viewing habits like Netflix does. And, like, we're going to be seeing, like, data-driven filmmaking in a way that we've – where it's like, no, actually – our our study proves that people want to cut every seven seconds. Like so, like mm. we're gonna see like creative choices being put into the hands of algorithms in ways. I at least I this is like where I think mm. that that never that we could never dream of. And I'm just so fascinated to see where it goes. If Netflix can stay afloat, because also apparently they have like insane problems where they're just hemorrhaging money. Right. And Disney's now gunning for them. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, Netflix just recently posted an article about like. Everybody's watching the shit out of Bird Box, and I was like, I don't know if that's true or not. How do you know? I mean, I mean, they probably have all the data, but they didn't really like. They just published this article. It's like we trust you. Yeah, sure. You're just a multi-billion-dollar corporation. Why? I just wonder if that means they're going to get you know Bird Box two or whatever. But I don't know. It's. I mean, they don't like. The, they'll release something and they'll promote it for three days, and then it's like it never existed. Like you never get like. You never get recommended. If you go searching for horror, it's not like I am the pretty thing that lives in the house, like won't even come up. <laughs> or maybe it just doesn't come up for me, even though I love that movie, like whatever my algorithm is. But like, like it feels like shit just comes out and then vanishes because Netflix is all just about like, here's a new series. Like a new series? Jesus Christ, what happened to the old series? You're going to love this new one. Well, I think they have a listing now or at least a tab for Netflix originals. Well, the thing, whatever. yeah, and then like even that phrasing like irks me out because like they're almost never Netflix originals. Like they're almost never originate at Netflix. They're almost that is the label that they slap on movies that they bought from film festivals. Like right. they're not yeah. creative. Well, I mean what what's something how something like Stranger Things. I don't mm-hmm. know how much well, that, inherent in Netflix yeah, that is. I think I think like the TV yeah. so, like like a lot, a lot of the TVs are like British acquisitions and acquisitions from other countries. And then I think Stranger Things is, like, an actual Netflix original. Mm-hmm. But, like, it's all just gets the same thing where it's, like, this is a, this is a great, great British bake-off. It's, like, this has existed in England for, like, <laughs> ten years. How do you claim that this is your original? You know? It's ours like, now. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, that other side of the wind is a one of the strangest things to happen to the film world in 2018. So totally respect it being well, on your shit. list. And, and now I'm rooting thing. for uh, restoration of even more Wells yeah. films. Guess what, Jim? <laughs> You're going to hate the other side of the wind. I am. Why you is are, Jim going to hate it? Jim, because... I mean, Bill said the same thing, but yeah, I'm curious. Oh, you know, you're really going to... you. It's Because it's too, it's too chaotic. You're going to get... <laughs> you're, doing, you're doing your cat face again. No, but like... I just know your taste. Like you're, it's so you don't like things that are really in your face and like like the, <laughs> to, like, the, the like the things that like, yeah like or like Toby Hooper or like the things that are just like really push the boundaries of good taste. Like there is no good taste to be found 
And I don't mean good but taste in terms of like fake. I don't it, well right, but that is like that is a very different thing. Oh, That's not nearly a as lot chaotic. Of really quick cutting. This is super yeah. dense <laughs> in a way that like hmm. I mean like I also love for fake. I found this impenetrable. Like I uh-huh. and I just know that you're not a Wells aficionado, so I don't think you would have the context to like oh Wells. <laughs> Pretty good. All right, let's just go to the fucking number, number six. six. You know what? Out of all the movies on my list, this is the one I'm dreading to talk about the most because it it actually felt like a 90 minute anxiety attack. Oh, um, and it's hard to it's it's a movie like when it was over. I'm like, I need to just do an episode on this movie with somebody who, who else who's seen it because it was like it felt like an experience that. I can't. I'm still having trouble processing. I'm still like nervous to rewatch it, and it's a a film by Josephine Decker called Madeline's Madeline, and I I really want Regina to see this movie because it mm-hmm. is about theater acting and you know there, there's a band called Pop Will Eat Itself. This movie could have been called Film Will Eat Itself because it's like mm-hmm. it's it's a self devouring kind of experience because it's about the artistic process that doubles as like a document or a commentary on the artistic process and what it takes out of you emotionally and what does it mean to be a part of an actor's workshop, especially if you're bringing your own real-life trauma into a piece. And we get to experience that with uh, the lead character, Madeline, played by newcomer um, Helena Howard, who would be my number three after... um, um, Regina Hall and Tony Collette for for actresses and uh, it was just it's a really hard movie to talk about because you um, it's a really invasive experience the camera's like constantly in the face and kind of like like hovering around and you know you're not sure exactly the is this really a reliable narrator kind of situation um, but it's essentially about a young adult who is an actress that deals with a really intense theater director who really believes in the art of realism and putting that, putting all of yourself into a character, but have it reflect the real you. And so there's also, um, Madeline's really intense mother played by Miranda July and how both of these people in her life may or may not have fueled her neuroses to some degree because she struggles with depression and anxiety and she looked to the theater, the theater experience as a way to have an outlet, to channel her anxiety, to really immerse herself into a character, a, a different experience that can separate herself from the real world. But both the mother and the theater director reflect this opposite desire of, I want you to put yourself into a piece. And, you know, maybe it'll be improvised, maybe it'll be staged, and you're kind of not sure about halfway through exactly where one thing ends and one thing begins because it's it becomes a really sort of weird meta experience where like the, their life becomes the performance. Yeah, is it almost yeah. like Synecdoche, New York? And yeah, something? yeah, no, totally. And that's another movie I love because yeah. it really gets under your skin and makes you feel uncomfortable and it's very jarring at times. It's not a happy experience. Um, there is a monologue that is one of the most emotional moments I've seen in a movie all year, but at the same time, I'm still wrestling with it because themes about codependence, depression, anxiety, abuse, 
ugh, they just they they really sink into me in a way that I just like it makes me shaky to even talk about. But this this actress is just phenomenal in how intensely vulnerable she gets to where you do wonder how much real life from her own real experiences are informing this character of Madeline. And so I'm very curious to check out this director and see what else she's done. It's her third film, so I haven't seen her others, but they're just really challenging the art form. And there's a certain point where it feels like it's become like a little bit like Aronofsky's mother because it's assaulting you. <laughs> in a really because they eat a baby, not exactly, <laughs> but but like just they really go after what does it mean to you know what does the artistic process really mean, and it really becomes a commentary on that, and it's just uh, it's a hard movie to talk about, and I really can't wait to talk about it with other people who've seen it. I'm really mad I missed this. I really this is one of the few movies I really let myself like get excited for, and I just I, I want you and Regina to have, to see it and talk about it with me, like no texting or emailing call <laughs> after it's over, <laughs> or at least let's meet up over coffee. Also, and talk I had a uh, Obi Wan Kenobi moment just now where I was like Miranda July. Now that's a name I haven't heard in a long <laughs> time. <laughs> Long time. Well, the future also created a lot of anxiety. In yeah, me. <laughs> the future is definitely one of those movies that I was, I absolutely blew me away. But I feel like if I went back to it now, I would hate it. Don't. Yeah. Don't hate it. I mean, I, I haven't, I haven't go gone back, back to it. Yeah. I haven't gone back to it. I, mean, I think that was a time and place that it's, I'm it's outgrown. It's yeah. possible. But uh, but anyway, I thought I thought the future when I saw it was incredible. So and that's how I feel about Credit Madeline's Madeline. Too. Yeah, yeah. I do think it's incredible, but really. Hard to talk about, and and it's one of those I'm still processing, and let's, probably always will be. Let's read the next two lists. Oh, sure, let's do that. Next one is you, Brad. Oh, let's go let's, ahead and take let, a break. Let's take a break. <laughs> uh, let's do two more lists. Oh, should we? Okay. Um, I think the next one is for you, Brad. It is. It's from Valerie Richardson. Long-time and, listener. All right. And and her number 10 is The Rider. Nine, Hereditary. Eight, Support the Girls. Seven, The Last Race. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that one. I know Mike yeah. D'Angelo put on his list. Hmm. Oh, it's a documentary. Oh, okay. About stock car racing. Oh, cool. Six, If Beale Street Could Talk. Five, Burning. Four, The Favorite. Three, Relaxer, mm-hmm. two, Isle of Dogs, and one, Roma. Splendid. Well, we've come to that point in the episode where I get even loopier than ever, and I decide to somehow sing Bill Ackerman's 40 favorite movies of 2018. What? And he's a special guy. doing this? <laughs> Last year. Okay, so you, you, so for, for the record, you are deciding his tradition only in this very moment. Well, we're going to be doing this for two more years. I, I figured we'll just make this the part of the routine. I don't know why it's stupid, but I'm doing it. All right, all right, don't worry. You, are, you have the list up? I do, and of course, there's titles like last year. I have no idea how to pronounce, so wish me luck. All right. Angels wear white. Arabi. Asako, one and two. Blew my mind. 
and border a bread factory part one and a bread factory part two burning custody the day after did you wonder who fired the gun eighth grade the endless the favorite first reform game night good manners hail county this this evening <laughs> sorry <laughs> happy as lazaro holiday <laughs> the house that jack built <laughs> i am not a witch if beale street could talk Keep an eye out. Mm. Leave no trace. Long day's journey into night. Lover for a day. Madeline's Madeline. Minding the gap. Monrovia, Indiana. Mantra, blah, 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 blah. I can't pronounce that one. Nonfiction on body and soul. The other side of the wind. Personal problems. The rider. Rider, shirkers, shirkers, shoplifters, upgrade, werewolf, what you gonna do when the world's on fire? See, I picked the the right show to guest on. That was some some free entertainment right there. Do you remember a uh, Grey Noise podcast where it just evolved into us making weird sounds (laughs) in the microphones? Yeah, and I still continue that tradition, sadly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We haven't really grown that much. <laughs> for the, like, no, I haven't grown that much. And, you know, I'm sorry. I'll try harder. Yeah, that's where we are. That's yeah. where we are as humans. I still got two more years. Oh, my thighs hurt, everybody. Your thighs? Oh, yeah. You guys didn't get to see, but Patrick was jamming along with that. He was getting into it. All we right. may or may not have clipped. We'll see. <laughs> no, we definitely fucking clipped. All right. Uh, now that we've read two more, where am I? I'm doing my number five. Uh, yeah. Uh, yep. So this is a movie I didn't get a chance to revisit, and I should have, because uh, it's a complicated movie that I am, I have hot and cold feelings about. Gotti. And it's just, it's been forever uh, since I've seen this. Uh, Black Klansman. Oh! I saw it opening weekend, and I haven't seen it since, and it's... So... Like, first off, right off the bat, like, as a longtime Spike Lee fan, whenever Spike Lee gets it in his, his head to be like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a good one again. I'm not gonna do a Red Hook Summer or a Chirac. I'm gonna do this. Like, the, it's, it's exciting. And it was a very exciting to be in the theater and watching that. Um, it is, it's, it's not as good as, like, classic Spike Lee for me in that it, it is aiming to evoke that in its sort of again. It's been so long, um, and also I'm out of breath. Uh, it, <laughs> it, there, it, I feel like the opening sort of calls to mind Malcolm X, like uh, there's an American flag that burns or yeah, something along yeah. those lines, right? Um, Footage from Gone with the Wind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's yeah that Alec Baldwin thing or whatever. Okay, so the thing I like about Spike Lee, and we've done the Spike Lee episode, and we've talked about this, like, I love that Spike Lee is a weirdo who has a weird <laughs> sense of humor, and that he he just fucking pushes things too far. Like, he'll just go in a direction where it's like, this is, you're really undercutting everything you're trying to do, but okay, I'll go with you. Like, it, I just tend to find, I tend to have, have, like, a similar sense of humor, and I tend to think the things he finds funny, I find funny as well. Um, so as, yeah, uh, this is a tough one for me cause I'm, I'm trying to recall, uh, it's, it works as an undercover cop movie first and foremost. I Absolutely, think that was, yeah. oh, also I was on a podcast where we talked about this. So 
If you want to listen to the uh, Fresh Perspectives episode on Black Klansman. Oh, Klansmen, that's right. Yeah, that was, uh, that was like a week after I saw it. So yeah, That was a good episode. Um, it works as a cop movie. And that's, I think, the thing that I ne- wasn't necessarily expecting or looking forward to was like watching Spike Lee do an exciting undercover thriller. <laughs> like, uh, But it, it works in that way. Um, it's It has that weird sense of humor. It has... All the things that I like from Spike Lee, but it also... So here's the thing about Spike Lee's politics. Spike Lee has energy to spare, and Spike Lee has righteous anger at good things. Spike Lee is a capitalist, and Spike Lee ultimately is a reformer, and he... This is a movie, I think, that doesn't fully unpack... Uh, police violence. Like, I don't think this movie really fully gets into white supremacies. Like, it it goes there, but it leaves a lot on the table yeah. um, in terms of, like, police stations actively recruit from the KKK. Like, that shit has been going on, like, since forever. So, that, like, the idea of there is one racist cop who harassed uh, Tessa Thompson's character, and then at the end, he gets played, and then he gets, like, put away, and it's, like, this nice happy bow on the racism of the police department. Like, it, it, it's fucking false, and it's bad, and, like... I almost thought that was a dream sequence. Right. It almost feels like the end of Bad Lieutenant, where, like, all the people are, like, running to his desk in one uninterrupted shot and telling him that his problems are solved. Like, mm-hmm. it felt a little bit like that, for sure. And but th- they also... Buried the case. That was another thing the police did that wasn't. Uh, yeah, yeah. And and like I, I don't think Spike Lee really has. Like I don't. I think Spike Lee is maybe out of touch of our current political moment in ways. Like yeah. I, like for example, the end of Chirac is like. Corporations have come in and they're giving everyone in Southside Chicago jobs. And like, it's like this bizarre, it's another bizarre, like, weird dream sequence sort of a thing where it's just like this weird Days Ex Machina solves all the problems. And I don't know, I've talked about this so much more in depth and so much fresher memory on Fresh Productive. You probably just watch this. I think it is so cool. I love that it is a fucking black exploitation undercover cop movie throwback thing. I love that it is as concerned with representation in cinema. And as concerned with the racism of Hollywood as it is with actual white supremacist movements, like, I think it is probably better at that stuff than it is at the actual history, um, just because that seems to be the stuff that Spike Lee is really, really nosed down. Um, He does the the Spike Lee thing I love where uh, it will cut to actual, like, in Bamboozled, all of the racist objects on Delacroix's desk are like actual racist objects. <laughs> like they're not props that were made for the film. You can tell they're antiques and he gives them like special close-ups that feel like documentary inserts. And this has like Klansmen, like I, KKK ID cards and it will cut to an actual like close-up of what you can know for sure is an authentic uh, like membership card or like an actual authentic mugshot. And like, mm. I just love his style and I love the way he marries his weird sense of humor with a genuinely thrilling undercover cop story. And I love the idea that he just gives no fucking quarter to the idea that any of 
these like fucking assholes have any sorts of humanity whatsoever. Like he 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 fucking he fucks with the audience, but with that one scene where like they the guy the one of the head guys of the KKK like treats his wife like shit, and you like he like registers her disappointment, and you're like, oh, it's isn't that it kind of sucks, isn't that too bad that he's with her? And then it's like, no, she's like in bed like telling erotic stories about like murdering children like yep. like she is not a good fucking person why would you assume that this person who is like in love with a clansman uh, is a good person <laughs> stop giving everyone infinite benefit of the doubt stop like giving fulfilling uh sort of redemption narratives to everyone you possibly can because it makes you more comfortable like there's there's a lot of good stuff here and i think it's very flawed uh, but I also think it's a movie I'm going to watch a lot, uh, like a lot of Spike Lee movies, and yeah, I'm just yeah, going to enjoy too. the hell out of it every time. And if you want to know more, you should listen to The Fresh Perspectives, where I go in more in-depth, and I can remember shit. <laughs> and keep listening to this podcast, because I think oh, sure. I, I might yeah. be bringing this up a little bit later. Probably. Preach it, brothers. <laughs> it's quite good. Quite good film. Yes. But before I do that, mm-hmm. I'm going to get to my number five, which is Hereditary. Oh. My favorite horror film of the year. Actually, not that I've seen that many, so I'm not. But this one, the I man was, didn't even see Hellfest. <laughs> it, it's a problem. I know. I know. <laughs> You're not going to like it more than her. Probably not. No, no, no. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, I also haven't seen Halloween or Suspiria remakes, so those have to happen as well. But this one was awesome. If A Quiet Place was the great boo movie for me, this is the anti-boo movie because it really places its horror much more central with the characters. Uh, It's about this very dysfunctional family uh, who's uh, the matriarch, the the mother or grandmother dies, and... uh, there's something very suspicious about the funeral and about the people who know her. And we're going to get into some spoilers here. So uh, basically she's in a satanic cult Mm -hmm. and various supernatural hauntings occur, attempting to possess, take over, destroy parts of the family so that a very particular result uh, can happen from the the point of view of, of the demon and this is all unfolded in just the best way horror movies do. It's very gradual. It's very you, you get to know the people and care about them. And the, the way the horror is presented is really interesting because they're not going for jump scares. There are things that are in the background, kind of in full sight, and... You just have to look a little more carefully. You have to pay more attention. And then, you, you, you know, different people in the audience will notice different things at different mm-hmm. times. And that effect can, can be very creepy. And then you have the, this great lead performance by Tony Collette, uh, who is you know, a- attempting to somewhat keep it together as, as her family is being destroyed and destroying her, itself. And... You know the 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 young girl is played by a can convince she's a she's got a very strange look to her the young girl they cast and there's an eeriness that she brings to that performance and I don't know I don't want to get 
too far into the ending, but I I was impressed. I thought that as far as horror this year goes, this was the gold standard. We might be hearing about that one again. We're going to hear more about this. Um, Before you get into your number five, Jim, I'm going to read Sean Ponto's list. Oh, yeah. Sean Ponto says, I'll spare you ridiculous notes about each film I like, like the year that I bashed her. Here are some titles I thought were very good for a not-so-great year in film. Number 10, Suspiria. Number 9, Eighth Grade. Number 8, The House That Jack Built. I really wish I saw this, and I I probably will see it in 2019, but it seems (laughs) like it's up my alley in a way basically no Lars von Trier is. Number 7, Isle of Dogs. Number 6, You Were Never Really Here. Number 5, Blind Spotting. Number 4, Bad Times at the El Royale. Number 3, Roma. Number 2, First Performed. And number 1, Hereditary. Ha ha! Uh, what's your number five, Jim? It's not a movie I want to talk too much about, but um, and it's not just and it's not because I mean I don't it's not on either of your lists, but at the same time, I don't have a whole lot to talk about with it. At the same time, I'm like excited that it's here on my list because I liked it so much. That was a really weird way to say it. <laughs> that was <laughs> that came out a little glib. <laughs> yeah. Hey. Um, well, I mean, just in comparison to your assessment of. This director's previous film from last year, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, I feel like there's a lot more going on in that movie. Mm-hmm. A lot a lot more to discuss. Whereas The Favorite, which is my number five film of 2018, I think it's just a really um, entertaining watch to, you know, to watch these characters be, you know, really callous towards one another. And you know, I'm sure it sort of echoes a lot of political and personal climates and any sort of power dynamic and sort of power struggles. But, um, you know, I'm not sure if Lanthimos is going really deep in the way that he has with his previous work. I mean, I've been a fan of his since Dogtooth, but... It's not as off-putting on the surface as, like, Lobster and Dogtooth and Killing of a Sacred Deer. Yeah. I think, like, his thing is slotted into the costume drama in a way that feels at least more like other costume dramas. And I kind of like costume yeah. dramas when they're done this way. Yeah. With, when they have energy, great dialogue, the mm-hmm. character interactions are really memorable. Um, and again, just really intense confrontational moments that uh, really unnerved me, but also made me laugh sometimes at the same time. Um, there's a nice moment involving a lobster race, which is kind of funny given that the director's previous film was called The Lobster. I don't know if that means anything. It might just be a silly joke. And I don't know. Like, is, is, is there a lot going on in this movie on a deeper level? I don't think so. But I, I just enjoyed the experience of watching this movie. And, and certainly, I think the aesthetics, the cinematography is really great. I know a lot of people are like, what's with him and those fisheye lenses yeah, all the time? I, ah! I cannot get enough of his wide, his wide angle it. lenses. Yeah, I like, it. I'm a total fucking sucker for it. I me love too, it every time. So everything every just clicked movies. for me with this movie, and yet yeah. I don't have a whole lot to say. I just felt happy watching it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's not a happy movie, especially at the end, because I think it does say a lot about codependence and... Also, what the rabbits represent is really, really heartbreaking and, and, and dark and sad. But I just found it to be one of the more memorable what movie watching What did rabbits represent? Space. I don't think I ever got that. Um, her, her children. The children that she never got to have. Oh, or, right, right, right. Yeah, you yeah. know, her many um, miscarriages, I mm-hmm. believe. Yeah. Sure. So, like, what they represent to the actual character, not necessarily yeah, what they yeah. represent, like, as metaphors right, in the right, film. Right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. 
So that's what I look forward to um, revisiting time and time again. It's just, and what can you say about all three of these actresses who are really at the top of their game? It's uh, it's it's pretty remarkable cast too. Mm-hmm. So that's I all. That, I think like I have just seen, and I mean this is these have there have been movies about this since like the beginning of fucking films. So sure, this might just be a situational thing for me. I like. I've just seen so many films about, like, sexual power dynamics. Yeah, yeah. That, like, it's really hard to, like, it's really hard to beat Duke of Burgundy in that regard. It's really hard to beat, uh, what was that fucking movie that we watched, the uh, Japanese film, um, um, that I said reminded me of Phantom Thread. Oh, crap. Remember we watched that and we talked about it? <laughs> oh... Kanji. Kanji? Kanji. Swastika. Yeah. Huh. That's the name of the film. Anyway. Like, there's a bunch... Of, like, Or The Servant. Or, like, all, all the, these... Yeah, 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 yeah. Or, like, all of these kinds of movies. It's just, like... I feel like it's really hard to break new ground. And I think this is entertaining and funny. But I think... Maybe, in, like, The Handmaiden, too? Yeah. Like, The Handmaiden is sort of like this as well. Like, it's just such a common... Story that compared to something like The Lobster, compared to something like Killing the Secret Deer, it was a little bit of a letdown. But like, I can it's a really that. cool movie for I sure. I can understand that feeling that you had. That's why I didn't like. I mean, know, and it's and it's like crap on your face. Yeah, yeah, over it, over your review. I thought, yeah, no. I mean, I, mean, I, I gave it three and a half stars. No, no, like, I didn't give it a bad no, review. No, I no, like this did, movie. You didn't. I, I, I just. I don't. You know, a lot of people are kind of over the moon over this movie, and I, I understand mm-hmm. why. But I also yeah. understand your your take and I just think I like these types of movies. Sure. Sure. You know? Absolutely. It's a We're, good one of those. Yeah, for sure. How should we relist? Yeah, I think so. We All should right, read okay. a couple lists. Why not? I think next is yours, Brad. Jason Weinberg. Yes. Jason Weinberg. His list starts at number 10 with border. Then number nine burning eight blind spotting i see what he's seven doing oh is there some alphabetizing going on here yeah <laughs> a lot of b movies yeah. well there's one more at seven black clansman six game night right, and we, now we lose the whole b concept i don't know it's totally <laughs> this is a terrible list yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry jason five eighth grade four hereditary three leave no cha- trace two the endless whoa and one jim the favorite. That's a favorite. <laughs> yeah. All right. It's his favorite movie of the year. Given. And the next list is yours, Jim. <laughs> All right. Um, this is my my new friend and acquaintance, uh, Sharon Jissy. Sorry to bother you, Black Klansman. Eighth grade. Terrified. Hereditary. Chained for life. Does anyone know what Chained for Life is? I don't. I have not heard of it. I know she's mentioned that it's seeking distribution and a couple festivals. Maybe we'll get a chance to see it. And uh, same goes for her next pick, Relaxer. Mm -hmm. Hope we get to see that one. The favorite, Madeline's Madeline, Isle of Dogs, Under the Silver Lake, and oh, we're going to have to talk about this one on Saturday. Annihilation. Invalid. (laughs) Uh, No, I'm joking, of course. All right, so let's get into my number four film. My let's number, do that. My number four film is a Chinese film that was a festival film of 2017, but it got a commercial release in Chicago at the New Siskel Film Center in 2018. So, oh, I know it's, what this is. It's on my list, but if it's not on other people's list, it that's should fine. be on my list. I it, you I'll, forgot? That I you completely saw it. forgot. 
So but it's a probably, very memorable movie. Probably doesn't speak to yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'll fix that. Uh, it's called Angels Wear White by Vivian Q. Um, and I want to give a really big content warning at this point because mm-hmm. Angels Wear White is a film about rape culture, and it is it has no graphic depictions of sexual assault, um, but it is extremely graphic in its depictions of all of the trauma and horrific shit that surrounds sexual assault and child abuse. So like not just my not just as a content warning for whether or not you should see this movie, but a content warning for me describing the film. Like yeah. it it's really fucking rough. So mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe skip ahead ten minutes. But if you if it that seems like something that would you would not want to sit through. But um Angels Wear White is about a undocumented hotel worker in China who works at a sort of seaside resort um, who one night a man comes uh, and rents a room and he has two uh, like young girls with him and they have separate rooms but at a certain point uh, he comes into their room or they go into his room and she witnesses this view via the security camera and she... Something that is caught on the security camera strongly implies that he sexually assaults the two children. Um, And she records the security camera footage with her phone by pointing her phone at the screen. And so she has this footage, but she doesn't know what to do with it because she's undocumented and she doesn't know what she can do with it. And so the film follows her and her sort of moral quandary and... um, the stuff that brings up, but it also follows the two kids and the sort of emotional and familial fallout of that happening as the kids start, you know, misbehaving in school or like it's very clear something is wrong and their parents start to get wind of what's happened. And it turns out the man who was with them was a family friend of one of the children and, but also like a powerful official in China and at this point, it becomes a sort of noirish thriller. Um, in some ways, like it is about this hotel worker and her trying to like navigate the like releasing this footage and how she is going to get justice. And meanwhile, it's about the parents and the sort of denial they're in, and it's about the kids and the trauma that they're experiencing. And it goes through, like, child abuse and rape culture and there's, like, the cycle of victimhood and it goes into the hotel worker being sort of sexually harassed by men who are around her who are connected to, like, organized crime and they get sort of mixed up in this story as well. It goes into the sort of self-loathing and shame that the children feel after this happening, knowing something's wrong but not really being able to fix it. It goes into victim blaming and and the these like ten year old girls basically being called sluts by their mothers and stuff like that. It goes into like the medical examinations of them and the fact that the doctors who are examining them are funded by the government who have a vested interest in this not being determined sexual assault. Like it is super harrowing into all of the ways that rape and sexual assault and sexual trauma are not, not just on a, not just are devastating on a personal level, but how they are propped up um, on a systemic level and how they're, and 
how it's not appropriately dealt with, and especially the way it ties into the government. Like, it's... It is very much a film that I watched thinking the whole time, like, yeah, Donald Trump is a rapist. Like, our, the President of the United States is a rapist. This is not a far-fetched thing. This is not, like, some wild uh, crime story. This, like, this is absolutely just the truth. And the thing that makes it not just sort of wallowing in miserableism is that it has this structure where all of these uh, girls who are caught up in this uh, sort of destructive system are actively, like, because it has this thriller structure, it gives them some sort of agency, um, even though all of the structures around them are set out to disempower them and stuff like that. There is forward movement they're making. It's not just focusing on how terrible they feel. Um, And in that way, it sort of is able to push through any... Because at a certain point, you can watch a movie that is just traumatic incident after traumatic incident after traumatic incident, and you will just shut off. And you will not really respond to it emotionally anymore because you are so aware that all the film is doing is traumatizing you. And because this film has this sort of story that has excitement and tension and it has these sort of genre mechanics to it, it punches through that and it makes you lean in in a way that you... That, that the traumatic material hits you that much harder. Um, there's a really interesting use of a the 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 artwork Forever Maryland. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Um, which is a uh, sculpture that I forget. I don't know who created it or when it originated, but it's basically a giant sculpture of Marilyn Monroe's legs from Seven Year Itch, and that sort of invites slash questions the viewer to look to walk you know up under her skirt and look up it. Um, like that is. That's an image that's leaned on a little too hard, and it's sort of like the last shot of the movie, and it's uh, once it's sort of been robbed of its power because they've gone back to that image too many times. But like, yeah, I agree. With it that. was an absolutely harrowing movie that wasn't just really, really smart in the comprehensive way it depicted all of the systems that keep abusers free and keep um, and keep the abused uh, sort of disempowered. It also found a smart way to express that that wasn't just hopeless, uh, you know, and and uh, just just awful incident after awful incident. And it's it's just a really incredible movie. My understanding is that the director, the Chinese woman uh, Vivian Q, has a she's made one other feature film, and I haven't seen it. But my understanding is it is a similar thing where it has sort of a noirish thriller structure but it's really about a bigger political issue and I would like to see that and I'm certainly interested in her next film yeah that's it's an uncomfortable movie but it's consistently compelling and yeah. you you really get enveloped by it especially with I mean it's, a, it's got a lot of humanity despite the fact that everybody's doing you know uh, really inhumane things in it so mm-hmm. I well, I mean, it's, it's hard. To, yeah, it, it finds it finds the strength in the characters who this is happening to. Yeah, yeah, is, no, that's a great way to look at it for mm-hmm. sure. Um, it it they are resolved to resolve that the, there are two main there are two girls that it happens to, but there's one main character, and she is the her friend is sort of more in denial, mm-hmm. um, but she knows that something is up, and she is ten, so she's not you know necessarily going to have all the psychological tools at her disposal to address this, but she is actively working through it in a way that is not just shots of her like 
you know, like cowering and crying and stuff like like she is pushing forward in a way that is both heartbreaking and again like pushes through that any sort of emotional shutoff that you as a viewer might have after being just subjected to too much horrible material. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a really great depiction good. of resilience at the very end. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but not falsely optimistic. Yeah. Um, I would like to read a list from Rebecca Martin, uh, co-host of Fresh Perspectives. Her number 10 is The Rider. Her number 9 is Puzzle. Her number 8 is Starsborn. Her number 7 is Leave No Trace. Her number 6 is Minding the Gap. Her number 5 is Searching. Her number 4 is Annihilation. Her number 3 is Sorry to Bother You. Her number 2 is Wildlife. Does anyone know Wildlife? Yes, yeah, the Carrie Mulligan Paul Dano movie. Oh, that's right. We talked about that. Yeah, I like. Uh, and I then like our it. number one is Blind Spotting. Excellent pick. All right, what is your number four, Brad? My number four comes all the way from South Korea, <gasps> and is a film called Burning. Mm. It is from Lee Chang Dong, who some of you might know from a wonderful film earlier in the decade called Poetry. Which, if you haven't seen, I, I'd really recommend. Oh, I'm definitely going to see that now. As I'd recommend this one. It's very, it's a very mysterious film. It has uh, thriller, thriller elements, but it's not really filmed as a thriller. It's basically a, a love triangle. There's a, a shy and kind of withdrawn young man who runs into somebody he used to know in, in his childhood, a beautiful young woman, and she initiates sort of a relationship. Uh, but it, it really... She leaves town before they can really get to know each other. So even though uh, they've had sex and there there's a bond there, uh, you don't get the sense that this relationship is on solid ground. Also, you get the sense that she might be lying about a lot of things. He's uh, supposedly going to come in to feed her cat, and there's no evidence she actually has a cat. And... <laughs> as, as Jim looks <laughs> There is no evidence that Jim has a cat That's true I never post any pictures or anything uh-huh. well, I, don't, I don't follow you on social media What do I know? I know And when she comes back She comes back with kind of this uh, Slick uh, businessman type A rich guy Way above their socio-economic uh, Place And uh, he is interested not Not only in her But also in the young man too and kind of there's this three-way bond that develops but it's one that is fraught with suspicion tension tension if there's not outright anger a lot of that is because our our lead character is so internalized and withdrawn now this eventually leads into um some criminal uh, accusations of murder and I'm not going to talk about who gets murdered or how or why, but this is handled in what a, a different movie would have shifted to thriller mode in a way that just continues to kind of needle at the uh, character building. And so it, it really becomes, I think, this um, wonderful kind of study of loneliness and what that can mean to feel truly alone. I concur, and we'll be talking about that one soon. In 
know what I'm saying? I think I do. <laughs> <laughs> Holy cow. All oh, right. Boy. Let's go forward to my number four pick. Uh, for a while, it was my number one pick. Actually, you know, I think pretty much number four through number one, they could all be number one. I like them all greatly. It's hereditary. Scared the pants <laughs> off of me. And um, there's a dinner scene in this that really, really, really got to me, too. <laughs> um, a really intense confrontational moment where Tony Collette just says, nobody ever talks about anything and what that can do to destroy and damage a family after trauma. Uh, not facing that trauma, what does that mean? But at the same time, the, the, the experience that... Um, you know the the young man has after after what he endures um and that's like i thought it was like kind of the perfect moment in that film of stillness and him not being able to handle what just happened the shock of that was reflected in the audience i think um just because like that to me was one of the more shocking things i experienced all year uh and I realize that's you know some of the criticisms have been like oh it, you know it kind of spells a lot out, especially like you know oh Tony Collette has you know a moment early on where she's in a support group basically explaining this is why I am the way I am or this is why you know I'm having such a hard time emotionally, but I found all of those moments to be really resonant with not just being like this really effective creepy cr- you know skin crawling horror movie but. Ultimately, a really interesting movie about post-traumatic stress disorder and what it, how it can just, you know, um, destroy you and eat you alive. Uh, and when it's not dealt with, or when it's not talked about, or in you know, in the case of Gabriel Byrne's father, is just kind of like shrugged off and not really handled in any way. But it's it's also a really complicated movie with how things play out and sort of the rules that are set up and, you know, like the, the burning of the journal, that whole thing. I, there's like still questions I have, even though I've seen this movie mm-hmm. a couple of times, but I like those questions. I like where this movie took me. I liked, you know, the setup of the, you know, the dollhouse, the, that, that wonderful tracking shot right into the dollhouse and just her, the, the miniatures that she creates in order to try to process all the things that she's dealt with, both with her mom and then, of course, what happens with her daughter and um, how it all plays out. I, I Again, I know people have said, well, I didn't really like where it ultimately ended up, but uh, I, sir, I did. <laughs> I liked everything about this movie, and I just can't wait to see what this director is going to do next because I just think he's a really assured, confident, incredible storyteller. This was my number thirty-four. Um, I'm not gonna. I, I would be able to put up more of a debate or whatever if I hadn't seen it so many so long ago. Um, I thought all of the parts that felt like a Conjuring movie or like Insidious were awesome. I thought all the actual parts where it was trying to be a horror movie were so good. I think he is so good at getting really terrifying building these really terrifying sequences. Um, like I, the movie like gave me nightmares. Like it's, it's really scary yeah. and it's really fucking cool that 
he that um, like this sort of there's a lot of these kind of horror movies that are like afraid to be horror movies kind of or they're like we're this really an art house film it's really a psychological what you know like yeah. they like to hedge their bets and they don't and part of that is because the filmmakers themselves aren't actually good enough to make a scary movie like they're not actually good enough at the technical aspects of crafting suspense and and scares that like they sort of just hedge their bets on atmosphere and mood and stuff and like just horror genre signifiers as opposed to actually trying to do something scary. So like the fact this movie was this like art house horror movie that was actually really scary was awesome. And I thought all of the parts about the family were kind of bad. I thought it was like kind of just emotionally incoherent. Like I thought Tony Collette's performance like she never felt like a human being. Like every given any given scene she felt like a completely different person in a way that was just like, I don't know if it's the best performance as much as it is the most performance. <laughs> <laughs> like, like she, like she gets to play seven different the fi- characters. The film. Um, I just, I just thought that all that stuff was bad and distracting from the thing that the film was actually good at. Also, this, if you don't guess that the mother was like part of some sort of witch or satanic cult, the second that that weird, creepy guy is like looming over the daughter at the funeral then, like, you just haven't seen many horror movies. Like, I knew instantly exactly where it was going. So the fact that it's, like, two hours long and it took forever to get there, I was just like, what if this was a 90-minute horror movie instead of a two-hour art house horror movie? Like, that's my dream, is this guy ditches all of the quote-unquote challenging material and just makes a fucking, like, scary haunted house movie. Uh so, but like, also, it's I couldn't really go into much more details than that. I thought Gabriel Byrne was really bad too. I thought like hmm. he was just sort of not present in any given scene. Um, so I think he's not present as a. Right, I think that's his role. No, yeah. I, there's a difference between a character not being present and an actor not being present. Like, <laughs> it, it's if it, I thought he was bad, but anyway, like that was that was. I thought there's it. I liked it. Uh, you know, I liked it all right. Um, but I just wish it was just a horror movie instead of trying to be like a. I don't know, like sweet hereafter or like something like yeah. that. Like, well, that's what I mean. There's there's horror to that shit. There's horror to trauma. Yeah, I just think he's not as good at that stuff as hmm. he is with the horror part. I thought he was good at everything. All right, pretty good. <laughs> All right, let's go to a list now. All right, um, this is from Matthias uh, from Denmark. This is not so much a top ten. In fact, it's not a top ten at all. It's an all-out fan mail. I came across your podcast last year when my girlfriend and I were awaiting the arrival of our second daughter. In the weeks leading up to her birth, we were baby-readying our apartment, cooking and cleaning constantly, and I found that all these chores became much less of a drag when I was in the company of you guys. Mm. I first went through your podcast on directors whose work I was familiar with, and afterwards dug into your talks on directors who I'd never even heard of. So thank you, Brad and Al, for making me want to watch Kurosawa movies. Don't know where I would find the three hours to sit through Seven Samurai, but the aforementioned daughters are older. By God, I'm going to make them watch it with me. Jim and Patrick, for hours upon hours of great company, I vacuum laughing listening to your drunken conversation on your favorite movies. If you ever want a Danish cinephile's take on any given Danish director, I will find time. I owe you. I wish you all a happy new year. Here's my top four. Like I said, not a whole lot of time with toddlers around the house. Of 28 releases I have seen. His top four are Ballad of Buster Scruggs, You Are Never Really Here, Roma, and First Man. That was very sweet. Thank you very much. Very kind words. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's what it's about. Uh, Jim, this next one is for you. Steve Procopi, uh, a member of the Chicago Chicago Film Critics Association and also the chief critic for Third Coast Review. Number 10 is Hereditary. 
Number eight is widows. Number nine is widows. Oh, you're right. Number 10 is hereditary. I know numbers. You can't fool me, Jim. There's not two eights. I forgot about numbers. Number 10 is hereditary. Number 9 is widows. Number 8 is black clansmen. Number 7 is leave no trace. Number 6 is a star is born. Number 5 is blind spotting. Number 4 is the favorite. Number 3 is border. Number 2 is Roma. And number 1, oh, wow, the writer. I'm going to go ahead and read this one from Thomas Wishloff. We baby Thomas. All right. His number 10 was you were never really here. His number 9 was black clansmen. His number 8 was Lou over the wall. Do you guys know Lou over the wall. I don't know. I, who don't. Is. I have not heard of this no, either. No, no, no. His number seven was shoplifters. Number six is first performed. Number five was hereditary. His number four was if Beale Street could talk. His number three was I do not care if we go down in history as barbarians. Also, do not know that one. Yeah. Great title. Uh, pretty good. Uh, number two is eighth grade. His number one was Suspiria. Thank you for coming back to the show each year. It's like it's like the only good form of nostalgia. Hope this message finds you well and that you'll have a dope 2019. Thank you very much. I think it's going to be a dope year for movies. Do you think so? I think so. What's coming out this? What's coming out twenty nineteen? Scorsese. Okay. Yeah. What's the last Scorsese movie I watched? I can't recall. Uh, I don't know. I guess Wolf, Wolf of Wall Street? Wall Street was the last one I watched. Yeah. So we'll see. Yeah. Um. I. I guess you. Did you? You did your number four already, right? Yeah. It All was right, Hereditary, so. your favorite movie. No, That's <laughs> right. That's right. We love Hereditary. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Number so three is Shoplifters. Um, for me, choice. which is. I think we've talked at length about all the things that are amazing about it. It's it's the first Coriata film I've seen, so I don't know if he's done this better or if, you know. Uh, but for me, I was it was definitely a, oh, okay, yes, I should watch this. I already knew that he was an important filmmaker and that he had made you know many great films, but now I know that I, I, I should watch them. And uh, Shoplifters is an amazing... Um, sort of challenging film uh, in the way it kind of slides into it's it is a quirky comedy it's a quirky family comedy basically like hmm. there's parts of it that feel not like they parts of it feel of a piece with something like hunt for the wilder people or something like like it it has just this lightness and this breeziness and this sort of joy de vivre and this and and it's got sort of a funny sense of humor and it's got people shoplifting and behaving badly and that's always fun to watch characters do that. But then it sort of just starts layering in piece by piece all of this stuff that challenges your assumptions. It it almost sets it up like it's going to be some ha- happy-go-lucky like indie comedy uh, about, oh, what a quirky family, but in the end they love each other and that's what's important. Like, it... It, it sets itself up like it's going to be like a very easy softball of a movie, and then it it's uh, it's actually a sinker. It's actually it's a movie that <laughs> yeah, you think yeah. is going to one place, and then drops right below your swing, and you're like, "Whoa, wait a second, what was oh, that?" Yeah. Right. Um, it is, and the way it, it doesn't do that with like a big twist, it just slowly layers that in. Um, is fascinating, and and it it's it's sort of what it's doing is it's challenging you piece by piece it's saying okay you're okay with this are you okay with this what about this are you okay with this all right now that you know this is that all right Mm. and it's like and there is no moment where it's like this is the part where the audience can no longer be on board with these characters you really have to investigate your own feelings and it's I, I I agree with Jim. Like I think I really enjoy films about chosen families. Um, in a way, this is also what was like moving to me about Leave No Trace. But I think Shoplifters 
is a lot more of a tricky and surprising movie in that regard. Um, and Sneaks I th- up on you. And I think in, again, like, the Koreeda is a, a Japanese man, and he is a, a fully formed artist who has his own, you know, pet themes and ideas, I'm sure, and, like, not everything fucking relates to how you felt in 2018, Patrick, but at the same time, that's how I interpret movies. So, like, in an era when I am... When I no longer like my family or trust my family because my family have revealed themselves to be the people that they are um, politically. Like that is what, okay. So what do I do with this? I have not broken contact with them, but what, what am I willing to accept from them? What am I willing to forgive because someone is loves me and is kind to me? What, what is actually important? What, where do your morals lie? And at what point does associating with someone break those morals? And at what point are you not taking care of yourself? Um, those are all good questions. Cause you can't survive as an Island, but like maybe you can't survive, uh, as an archipelago either. That's a bad metaphor, but at any rate, <laughs> um, like it's, what is the true unconditional love? Well, I don't, I mean, the, I think the truth is there is no unconditional love. Mm-hmm. I think the, I, um, me personally, but yeah. like, okay, so there's no unconditional love. What conditional love are you willing to receive? Yeah, yeah. Um, what can you forgive and what can you not forgive? And there are no easy answers. And it's not. It's also not about building up these characters and then pulling the rug out from under you, revealing their monsters. And <laughs> like, aren't you a fool for trusting us and trusting them? Like, no, they're human beings, and they. And again, like I, <laughs> I catch myself wanting to fall into a cliche, like they're not bad people, but like I can't honestly say that without some serious consideration. Some of them are not bad people. Some of them might be bad people. Like I don't know where I land on it, and the fact I think that's that what the movie's about I that spent that, area. yeah, the fact that I spent that entire movie doing that while also just being entertained by this comedy that was fun and clever and warm and had all of these little beautiful moments of empathy and humanity. Like the fact that on top of what I think is sort of like a, on top of enjoying it in the way that the movie I originally thought it was like, I thought it was a good version of that. And then there's this other thing that complicates how I even enjoyed those movies. Like, do I believe this fantasy of the, I don't know, like, what's the movie like? Like, Little Miss Sunshine or something. Like, do I believe that at the end of the day, we're all family and we all got to roll up our sleeves and love each other and whatever our differences is and whatever we've done, that's all right because we just love each other and that's going to win the day. Like, do I believe the end of eighth grade? Like, I don't know. Like, that's, they're, like, it's it's challenging Same with and exciting. The Gap, what's that? Same with Minding the Gap to some extent. With I, well, that's, that's, that was my criticism of Minding the Gap is yeah. that it doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, but like again, like the guy who made Mining the Gap was stuck in it, so it's it's a different sort of a thing. But um, I, I I think Shoplifters is just like a really astounding movie and just has an amazing cast. Um, especially, uh, I'm really mad because I don't know her name and it's hard to describe people's relationships to each other. <laughs> I can't yeah, say I know, the right? mom because like, right. that the, makes no difference. The mother figure, the mother the, figure, uh, yeah. not the grandmother figure, but the mm-hmm. mother. Figure, I guess. Uh, anyway, the scene where she is being interrogated by the police about the whole situation of oh, the yeah. film um, is absolutely astounding. It's like such sure. an amazing performance. Absolutely. Um, I really like this movie a lot. It's a good movie. Yeah. Absolutely. 
How about All you, All right, Brad? so for my number three, it's Paul Schrader's First Reform. Oh, really? And oh, I want high. to nice. thank the Chicago Film Critics Association for hosting that screening where Paul Schrader was actually there. I also got to see uh, Support the Girls uh, at that same festival. That's right. Great stuff. I but saw those two as well. Good the, job, the, guys. Let's do definitely. it again this year. <laughs> the, the, fil- the film at hand, it's uh, the story of a priest played by Ethan Hawke who becomes disillusioned as uh, he's counseling a family where uh, the husband uh, becomes suicidal after basically looking at the world around him and seeing it falling apart, in this case, in, in an environmental sense, and you know, asking, you know, what what's the meaning? What hope is there? And the priest who you know we see him trying to you know build build his flock and and keep his own faith finds himself very uniquely challenged and the whole thing is, is done in such an effective way we we are with this priest on his journey that uh where he seems to become more and more lost and if you see a lot of Paul Schrader movies, you see it kind of fits in with some of Schrader's favorite themes. There are echoes of Taxi Driver mm-hmm. in First Reformed uh, to the extent that uh, Mishima retells a, 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 that kind of character again from a different uh, socioeconomic perspective. This is I, I view it as almost the third in that trilogy. There's also callbacks to uh movies like uh winter light diary of a country diary of a country it's igmar bergman and 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 robert brisson and 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 they're done in in ways i mean schrader is open about this there there is some borrowing Mm -hmm. but they work those themes in so well and it's just great to see Schrader kind of working at the top of his form because very few writers and directors are able to approach this kind of psychology the way the way Schrader does and and he ends it in a very surprising place an ending that I'm not that crazy about even even with a rewatch I did like the movie a lot more well, well Schrader but. suggests that it might not be what it looks like hmm Patrick, what are your thoughts on the ending of First Reformed? Um, I also recorded a Fresh Perspectives episode on this. So oh, I must have missed <laughs> Those that. are fresher ideas, though I will say I'd like to rewatch it because there's a lot that I think is really good and interesting. Yes. I was put off by sort of a very blunt approach, uh, or what I perceive to be a blunt approach, but I don't think necessarily that subtlety is the only way to do things. Right. And like, so, and like, I will say, like, and I talked about this on the Fresh Perspectives episode, but. Uh, I really this was the first movie of 2018 that I saw that I said okay this is what it feels like to be in 2018 this is acknowledging the reality yeah, yeah, we exist yeah. in yeah. and that was it's good it's in 4.3 and it's gorgeous I love movies that are shot in 4.3 I think 4.3 is objectively the best aspect ratio mm. I made I shot a movie in 4.3 that, <laughs> that's true that maybe in the next couple weeks we'll actually get to finally go online after two years of that's uh, exciting. After two years after shooting it, because I think that again at the end. Uh, sure. Yeah, January fifteenth is the cut is the 
uh, deadline for the final film festival I submitted it to. So as long as I don't get into that, then I can just put it up. So cool. Um, at any rate, I love four three, and I love what Schrader does with four three with the depth and the movie is really gorgeous. Um, great opening shot, one of the best yeah. of the year. Mm-hmm. Speaking of great opening shots, word number three is if Beale Street could talk. Yeah, yeah, and, that's got one. Yeah. I think I'm going to have my own little mini director's club. I'm not going to record into a podcast, of course, but I just want to watch all three of this director's films in a row. Hmm. Um, and, I've, and I've watched If Beale Street Could Talk twice already, and I'm like, I can't wait to watch this again. It's funny. Medicine for Melancholy I don't know came out about that one. shortly after, or came out on DVD mm-hmm. shortly after Moonlight came out on DVD, and I didn't make the connection that it was the same director. I was just like, oh, this looks like it, because it was when I was working at the video store, so we mm-hmm. received it, but they didn't say, like, from the director of Moonlight on the cover or anything. So I was just like, huh, this looks kind of interesting, and I never watched it, and now I'm like, oh, I should have watched it when I had the chance. You dummy! Yeah, for sure. No, I'm going to watch them all. I think... Uh, I will say right now, Beale Street's my number two. Oh, so cool. yeah, we yeah, can yeah. both yeah, talk can, about yeah, this yeah. right it's, now. It's, 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 it's a good idea. Mm-hmm. It's a, it has a, you know, a more traditionally structured plot... Than Moonlight, but it's still far from conventional. I mean, it, the sort of shifting time jumping narrative. You know, a lot of people always say like, "Oh, I've seen that before." Kind of, you know, done to sort of uh, showcase like just the fractured mentality of somebody. And I think here it really creates like it really highlights the voice of this writer, James Baldwin. Is that the writer? Yes, Baldwin is the writer of the novel. Right, the writer of the novel. And uh, I, I'm curious to read more of his work. And I really like the simplicity of this story of just two childhood friends who slowly evolved into you know, lovers. And then their bond is tested when, one of, when Fani is falsely accused of rape. And as he's awaiting trial behind bars, uh, you know, Tish... The, the woman here finds out that she's pregnant and sort of, you know, is looking for support. And she, you know, basically gets that with, with her mother and, you know, her father. And it's really just a great film up with a love story that you really cling to and you really feel a lot. But it's also touching upon the sociological elements and implications of that time period and... You know how people not just that time period. Not yeah, right. of course, yeah, <laughs> of that time, but also of now. <laughs> and uh, you know, I think how there sad are. I is. think there are. I like the setting as far as the aesthetic and the costumes and yes. the colors and the yes. music. Like, I like that this it takes place in the seventies. But like, this movie would not have to change much if it took place that's in twenty eighteen. Yeah, no, that's true. But it's it's got these really other than sort beautiful. of like the story of like the shame of them moving in together before like getting married or anything like like yeah. that sort of thing is maybe rooted in that time. But everything right. else and his mother's reaction. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can have a she's like a she's depicted as a fundamentalist Christian in a way mm-hmm. that you could still have a fundamentalist Christian. But yeah, I know, I know a couple people like sort of pointed out that really intense confrontational scene with the families as sort of being really almost too melodramatic mm-hmm. but that's where I, I land I, don't, yeah, I did not like that scene I, I, I thought it I mean it certainly stands out you know and it's not it doesn't have that like nuanced delicacy and intimacy but it's really I think it it makes sense that the, these families are really you know are in conflict with one another as a result of being very different. And I liked the scene, but I was a little 
I wanted there to be kind of a follow-up to it so that the sure. confrontation happens and plays out and then doesn't uh, the movie moves on to other themes. Yeah, it doesn't resolve that that, that mm-hmm. fractured relationship, I think, but um it's he's really good at just capturing these really small moments between people that uh I don't know. I I feel like he's one of the be- better directors working today in in showcasing the fragility, but also the necessity of a very personal connection between two people. And uh, there's also a really, really intense scene. Is it uh, Brian Tyree Gibson? Yes. Yeah. God, that's a great scene. And they, you know, him reflecting on his time spent in prison and um, you know what it's like to be a black man walking the streets and you know having to deal with fear on a regular basis and still very traumatized by his his experience in jail and just knowing I think I mean the second time I watched this I think I became really more emotional knowing Fani's fate you know like I think rewatching this it, it just it sort of grabs you even more than it does on a first viewing so I just I love this movie I think it's you know it's one of those movies where it feels like a, a great novel mm-hmm. uh, you know and yet a very intimate simple story at the same time. And I love how fresh it was with how they depicted the love story because it didn't have to go through all the the, the romantic clichés that we've seen a million times that we they were, they're basically soulmates. They uh were close to childhood and as they grew up they yeah. just knew they were they were for each other. So by not having to run through all that stuff, it it frees the movie up to to focus not just on the relationship, but on you know what it's like uh, to be black in this environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's the Barry Jenkins' approach is very impressionistic in general. He is about giving you evocative pieces and allowing you to fill in the story yourself. That's true of Moonlight, and that's true of here. Yeah. Um, the thing I really found fascinating about this movie, and again, this is this ties into this is a 2018. Film. This is a film about what it is to live in 2018, and this is based on a novel from way before this. So, like, there are there are truths that were always true that became a lot harder to ignore uh, in our in our current political climate. So, like, yeah. I don't want to fucking like pretend because now that it affects me, the white guy, like, I'm going to be like that. Suddenly, now it's real and it wasn't real before because it's obviously you know. This this movie more or less takes place fifty years in the past, and the things the the corruption at the heart of the justice system, and you know for profit prisons and police brutality, uh, all those things were true now are true now. They were true fifty years in the past. They were true fifty years before that. Like this movie is about that. This movie makes the assumption that these things are immovable. This mm. will not be fixed. This will not be changed. This movie is in a lot of ways very pessimistic about uh, the way that these larger issues could ever be resolved. Um, This movie does waste no energy being shocked by these things. This movie accepts that as fact and then moves into a more interesting line of inquiry, which is, so how do you withstand it? Yeah. If you can't change it. You do not have the power to change this. There is no big speech that fixes the problem. Like, this is going to be a problem going forward. 
How do you withstand it? And that is what the movie is actually about. You need the romance to work because those are the stakes and you need there to yeah. be stakes. And you need it to feel like it's on the edge of not working out because that is, that's how you build stakes. So you need that opening scene with the family and you need to care about them loving each other. But like, I kind of like that as people, they are really like, they're not, it's not a rich romance that is like, here's the first date and here's the scene. And like, it's not about all that. Um, It is about, it's like, it's almost a generic love story in some ways. Uh, It's, it's just the way it's shot and the way it's acted. You feel it. Yeah. And and the way that the movie is structured, the way that it plays with time, you, it doesn't, it, it breaks through of struct of cliched structures in romantic films and therefore you feel it more viscerally. And I think the true same was true of Moonlight. I think there are mm-hmm. a lot of films uh, there are a lot of films about a queer victim who is in an unfair world that doesn't understand him and there's it has to withstand trauma because of it. And I think that that movie breaks through of those clichés because it is able to tell that story in sort of at odd angles in weird glancing impressionistic moments that feel so much more evocative of larger truths that it's not just, you know, and I think this film is better than Moonlight. I think this is a significant evolution of Barry Jenkins as a director. I think it's more interesting. I think his editing is remarkable. The, the cinematography is, it's just always these super gorgeous movies. They look and sound incredible. They, but and then for someone who is so clearly obsessed with how his movies look and how his movies feel like he just trusts actors there are so many scenes in this movie where he could do a quick cut of the prison he could do a quick cut of their past he could do stuff like that and it would fit with the aesthetic of the film but instead he wants to hold that one shot he on the person's face yeah. he really and like that is such a rare balance and that sort of delicacy and nuance of tone mm-hmm. and his the the performances he gets out of people are are just incredible um it was great close-ups of faces yeah, yeah. and the, just like the colors mm-hmm. and the warmth you feel like you're living in these people's lives um you feel like you're there there's it's almost like a similar effect to like carol was a similar uh, thing yeah. where just like the way carol looked made me I, in a way that I couldn't quite understand, and I also don't quite understand it here, like the aesthetic is the thing that punched through uh, the emotional barrier. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know how that works sometimes, but it's pretty. Remarkable. But it, it's it it's really remarkable. But like this movie is just a laundry list of ways people withstand racism. Mm. It's like some people are alcoholics. Some people find something that they're good at and just do it. Even if that thing is crime, like some people have art, some people have friendship and camaraderie. Some people have religion, like some people feel the need to push back against it and crusade. And some people don't want to waste their energy crusading. And instead it's like, all right, just we'll take the plea bargain. We're going to build our lives back up from this. We cannot, we cannot sink ourselves over this. We cannot defeat this. And, like, there is no one right answer. Um, the only one steady truth in the whole movie is that it's not going to get fixed. And for a movie that has that sort of overall pessimistic worldview, it is so warm and so humane. 
Um, I just, I, I, it was just such an astounding film. I really love it. It could easily be my number one. It, my number one and my number two could easily switch places, but I'm like so excited. Like after Moonlight, Moonlight's very good, but Moonlight also hit a bunch of buttons that felt like, all right, this is a story that, you know, a lot of people are going nuts over. Uh, so as a, as a queer man, I get really suspicious, maybe way more suspicious than I should. I get really suspicious of critically acclaimed gay movies that are about a single gay person who is in the closet and mm. has no connection to a community. Because I believe that those are the stories that straight people are comfortable with. Mm. Straight people don't like thinking about gay people having a history, having a culture, having like romantic, fulfilling lives. They like – they are more comfortable feeling sorry because ultimately uh, what the queer community presents is a challenge to traditional structures of life. And it goes, it's political and it's way more than just, I'm a man who's attracted to another man. It's, I am challenging your very assumptions of a fulfilling capitalist life and having families and, you know, having children and this and that. Like, I think that Hollywood makes films about, closeted individual queer people because those are the films that are easy to sell to non-queer people. And so Moonlight, I think, is a remarkable, amazing movie. But part of me is like, okay, I get why everyone – like, everyone loves it because it's a great film. But also I'm, like, intensely skeptical that a film like that that wasn't about a tragic victim, like, would get the same attention – and I was like, I was like looking forward to this being like, is this going to be another gay movie? And this is not, this is a straight movie except for the fact that, uh, what's his name is totally objectified, <laughs> which is like maybe a tribute to, uh, James Baldwin, the author's novelist who is gay, Stephen James in the, in the scene where they, uh, make love for the first time. Yeah. Like his body is like totally fucking sexy and like he gets that. That shot where he, he where he is totally objectified in in a way that she is because it's from her perspective it makes sense it's yeah, not no, it's not gratuitous yeah, but yeah, like yeah. anyway so part of me was curious as to how I would land on the next Jerry, Barry Jenkins film and this is how I always feel when a art house director sort of has a big hit is like it could be one and done maybe the next one maybe that was all they had and like this is the movie that convinced me that actually Barry Jenkins is one of the most exciting directors working and I can't wait to see what he does I next. completely agree um, anyway if Beale Street Could Talk is my number two it's your number three we need to read a lot of uh, lists so I have the next one it's from Donald Holland okay his number ten is Roma nine Suspiria eight Widows seven Leave No Trace six The Rider Five, Border. Four, Burning. Three, The Favorite. Two, Hereditary. And at number one, Game Night. Wow. Hell yeah, Donald. Game Night's funny, good. Funny, funny movie. You got one, Jim. I do, from Kurt Halfyard, formerly of Row 3's Cinecast. Uh, really cool guy. Very verbose. Number ten, The House That Jack Built out of Denmark. Number nine is Lutz from Germany. Don't know what that one is. I never heard that no. one. Number eight. Uh-oh. <laughs> Annihilation from the UK. Disqualified. Number seven. Shoplifters. Who cares? <laughs> from Japan. <laughs> <laughs> number six. The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which I didn't like very much. Um, <clears throat> number five. Sorry to bother you. From the United States of America. Number four. The Favorite. From Greece. Slash UK. 
Number three, Widows from the UK. Number two, Suspiria from Italy. I guess I guess technically Steve McQueen is a British director. You're right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I think yeah, that's yeah, yeah. I like to think it's from Chicago. It might be a, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it was produced by British money, but like <laughs> maybe he just means that it's by a British director. And number one, oh, well, this one's from last year. I mean, maybe he saw it at a different time than we did, but it's Phantom Thread in 70 millimeter, no less. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that made my list last year. Yeah. It, didn't have it, a lot, it didn't have a commercial release in 2017 in most places. Hmm. You're probably right on that, and it was my number one of last year until I saw a documentary called The Work. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Uh, Matt Gamble, Where the Long okay. Tail Ends, sends his love, Simon, <laughs> at number 10. His number nine was Bodied. Number eight, Revenge. Number seven, Three Identical Strangers. Number six, Thoroughbreds. Number five, sorry to bother you. Number four, Hereditary. Number three, Suspiria. Number two was Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Uh-oh. Number one was Black Klansman. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, think, I think you should go ahead and talk about your number two. All right, so please I will do, move on do. to my number two. Patrick, you, were, you discussed a number of films that you felt were very... 2018 yes and spoke to the moment we're at and 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 i think for me this is the one that does that more than any other film and it is spike lee's black clansman this uh thank you chip i didn't make your top 10 <laughs> it is only nine it is only nine twenty one p.m for the record right. no i'm not used to staying up late this isn't late. <laughs> what am I talking about? I'm not used to talking for five hours. All right, let's go. <laughs> All right so Spike Lee, Black Clansman. <laughs> no, so this, this uh, we've talked about a lot of aspects of the film. I love the the way it handles genre, the way it is such an effective uh, thriller and such a funny comedy and tells this really strange story with uh, with great performances where you really relate to the characters and care. But for me, the overriding value of Black Klansman is it ties together history in a way that I think few films uh, have attempted. Well, no films, I think, have attempted to tie it into th- this era in a way, in the in going as far back as Spike goes. So the movie opens with footage from Gone with the Wind, and you know talks about the you know this idealized view mm-hmm. of slavery and the South. And as we we and then you go to uh, Alec Baldwin as kind of a comic stereotypical Klansman, the way we think of them. Uh, from you know 1950s footage as these ridiculous clowns who you could identify immediately and dismiss. The film goes on. It, it talks about media in such interesting ways with its use of uh, Birth of the Nation and how it uh, how it tells its story. But then when David Duke comes into the picture, played by Topher Grace, who gives a great performance, which is something I didn't think I'd ever say before He's seeing this film. Yes. Easy man to hate. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. But, but he really embodies this kind of slick new face of racism that is not quite as comic as the stereotypical uh, Alec Baldwin version earlier. And as we see, 
as we learn, you know, as we see the investigation go on and then finally the investigation itself get completely covered up, connections throughout are made to the fact that if this uh, Duke form of racism is able to fester, it could take over. And, you know, we, we see that with the, the Trump presidency, an unabashed mm. racist as president, supported by less than half the country, but still enough to, you know, have put him in that seat. And the, the way the movie ends by um, connecting the, the fictional Duke to the real-life Duke and, uh, and finally to Trump and his, well, you know, both sides had good people in it comment. Um, I think what Spike, Sp- Spike is doing is really effective. And he's not doing it in a subtle way. There, there are right. these you know, magnificent camera works. It's very, it's very in your face. I think in the same way that, that Do the Right Thing was. And I do believe it's his, his best narrative film since Do the Right Thing. I haven't been on board with all of Spike Lee's movies. I think he, he's one of those directors that you kind of roll the dice. You don't know if you're going to get a great film or maybe maybe something barely watchable. But I, I think w- w- this is one that he invested so much into and that he had uh, – that, that has his voice in a way that, that has rarely been this effective. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It's a nice – transition into my number two which i'm guessing is your number one so we can again have a nice well we'll see it's uh train spot or blind spotting <laughs> ah mm-hmm. yeah we'll see is it, we, i want to know oh we don't have to know now okay it's an exhilarating film it's vibrant um it's definitely got one of the best buddy relationships I've seen in a movie in a very long time. Um, one of my friends, Corey Pierce, was like, did it make you think a little bit of uh, the early work of Kevin Smith? And I was like, maybe, but this one is really a lot richer. <laughs> um, and both characters distinguish themselves from one another as opposed to having very similar voices. But that sort of camaraderie that these two characters share um, is just so damn funny but also so heartbreaking and this film finds that beautiful tonal balance of both of being about a lot of issues that um you know a black man faces walking the streets or you know being on the edge of so much happening internally and wanting to do good but the world he's surrounded surrounded with often is bad or at least does bad things or says inappropriate things. And he's trying to manage all these different factions, but also he just winds up in a very um, difficult circumstance uh, when he witnesses, you know, a cop shooting uh, another black man on the street and, you know, watching him deal with that while trying to maintain, you know, a social life and a romantic connection. I mean, deep down I was, (sighs) I wanted to roll my eyes a little bit at how the title of the film is revealed, but I loved it so much anyway. Like, there was very few things that took me out of this movie to make me, um, you know, 
not be on board. I, I I pretty much loved everything. Maybe you know the final confrontation again is a little convenient when he stumbles upon you know the officer and starts you know wrapping his rage right at him. And maybe it's a little you know flawed in that regard of how it's executed, but I I still felt a lot in that moment, and this movie made me feel a lot. It made me feel um, a, a lot of empathy in ways that few films have this year, and I just enjoyed every second of it. It it, it sort of brought to mind a little bit of the link letter slice of life approach between people, um, but it also has a lot of subtext going on and a lot of sociological issues, as we've talked about a lot on this podcast. There's just um, a lot to unpack and unravel, and uh, David Diggs is just un- unbelievable in this film. I can't wait to watch it again and again, probably on a yearly watch basis. Blind Spotting's great. It is. Um, <laughs> we should read some more lists. Oh, should we? Sure. Sure, 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 sure. Who's ne- Oh, Steve Farah yeah, yeah, is okay. next. And we'll start out with Cold War at 10. Nine is Paddington 2. Eight, The Rider. Seven, Lover for a Day. Do you know that one? I don't. I know it's on Bill's list. Okay. Hmm. I don't know. Six, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Mm-hmm. Five, Hereditary. Four, Shoplifters. Three, A Quiet Place. Two, Madeline's Magdalene. Yeah. Or the, the other way. <laughs> and uh, one, Shirkers. Um, I, I, I almost started booing, but I forgot. I mixed up Hereditary and Annihilation. We're not booing Hereditary. No. <laughs> we know we're not. Why don't you go ahead and read the next one, Jim? Why not? <clears throat> number 10 is my number two. Oh, wait. Sorry. I should say who this is. This is from Joshua 4. Uh, number 10 is Blind Spotting. Number 9 is Cold War. Number 8 is Pincushion. What's Pincushion? Anyone? I don't know. I don't okay. know. Number 7 is Paddington 2. Number 6 is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Number five is Suspiria. Wow, here it it is again. Number four is Lover for a Day. Hmm. Number three is The Day After, another Hong Sang-soo film that I've yet to see. Number two is Shoplifters. And number one, hmm, Burning. Robert Reinecke is the co-host of Still Watching the Skies, and he has watched ten films that he likes from this year. His number ten is Pet Names. Number nine is Roma. Number eight is Black Panther. Number seven is Cold War. Number six is Sorry to Bother You. Number five is Paddington 2. Oh, no. <laughs> Patrick's head is all over my wall. Robert has written, I picture Patrick's head exploding about now, but it's extremely well-crafted, pays off everything it sets up, has terrific performances throughout, visual flair, and charm to spare. I agree. I like the little furry bears just as much as anyone. Well, not anyone, oh. but I like them. <laughs> Number four, Black Clansman. Number three, Shoplifters. Number two, The Rider. Number one, Annihilation! Boom! <laughs> Sorry. Well, what do we really think about Annihilation? So (laughs) not very good. (laughs) One of the weird things about the list uh, is about films as films get released on like weird staggered schedules. Um, Last time we did this, we were talking about 2017 films. There was a film that Jim had seen that I had not that Jim liked a lot, Um, and I ended up watching it this year, and I was not that big of a fan. And then I rewatched it. Um, my number one is The Phantom Threat. No, I'm kidding. I'm Shut kidding. Your mouth. The Phantom Threat sucks. <laughs> that, uh, no, it doesn't. What's wrong with you? <laughs> you want to make my head explode? I was really hoping I could go like 30 more seconds, but I really had no poker face there. My number one is, of course, Blind Spotting for all the reasons I mentioned. It's pretty good. Um, I The reason it won every fucking category it could qualify for on my list is because it is the most memorable movie of this year. It's... 
it's funny you mentioned uh, the idea of like it reminding someone of Kevin Smith because it kind of reminds me of Kevin Smith by proxy in the way that it reminds me of Friday. And Friday reminds me of Kevin Smith. And yeah. that is, I think, the thing a lot of people might be missing about this film is they talk about it as, as if it's a successor to Do the Right Thing, but it's really a successor to Friday. It's really a comedy. It's a comedy about two friends. It is a comedy that takes his character seriously. The thing about Friday is that all the serious material is bad, whereas in this film it's amazing. But, like, it is absolutely about the dynamic between these two. Um, and it is just utterly hysterical. The scene, at, the scene at the beauty shop is incredible. I don't even, I don't even oh, like yeah. Alfred Hitchcock movies. <laughs> Twist make, <laughs> fuck M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> Twist make me nervous. <laughs> like, like this movie, Tish Campbell's so good in this movie. Everyone is so good in this movie. And him selling those curling irons. Um, great yeah, too. like, there's a lot going on, and I don't think it all works. I think this is a weak year. So the fact that my number one movie is a movie I have reservations about is reflects that. Um, but I think the stuff that works is so amazing. I think I will watch this just dozens more times because it is so funny, and I love the performances so much. The opening uh, scene inside of the car... We're just it ends with them holding just like six oh. guns. It's, I that was, I went into this movie expecting it to be a serious drama about mm-hmm. gentrification and so police violence, yeah. and that being the opening scene of the movie just fucking destroyed me. And I go, all right, I don't know what the fuck's going on now. I'm I'm yours, blind spotting, and blind spotting never disappointed me. I. I, I go into a lot of movies like I think people know this. Like I'm hard on movies because. If I feel I know where things are going, I I get restless and I I always err on the side of like liking movies that surprise me. Um, so there's a lot of movies that I think are well made or whatever, but they're just I knew what was going to happen and then I was just like, okay, I'm, I sat through it. I'm out of here. But but <laughs> like blind spotting was surprised me. Blind spotting, I never expected it. To get deeper and it always gets deeper. I never expected it to get funnier and it always gets funnier. Like, the writing is so sharp in a way that no comedies are. Like, Game Night is an incredible comedy from this year. Like, Game Night is not half as funny as Blind Spotting. And yeah. honestly, like, at the end of the day, like, the reason Blind Spotting is my number one movie is because it is by far the funniest movie that came out this year. It's probably funnier than the funniest movie that came out last year. Like, I love these characters. I love that the comedy comes from a real place. It's not just a bunch of one-liners. Uh, it's not yeah. just a bunch of weird improv. It's like it's, it's it, character-driven comedy. It's a character-driven comedy, and I don't think being about serious things precludes something from being a comedy. I don't think having harrowing moments precludes something from being a comedy. Um, it's like to me, this it just works on every level it attempts to. Except for the rapping, which is like, all right, David Diggs, according to his Wikipedia, David Diggs is a rapper. I know he was in Hamilton, which is full of bad rapping. Oh, I heard, uh, I heard it was good rapping. It's not? Ham- oh, look, it's good rapping for white people who don't listen to rapping, but like, let, let, let me just, having seen Hamilton, let me just Hamilton. defend that it is a Broadway musical exactly. style that utilizes rap, and it okay. is in no way trying to be. Uh, actual rap. Right. And the <laughs> thing I find compelling about actual rap is not present in Hamilton, nor is it present in the sort of slam poetry moments in this film. Um, but I think that the emotion that that comes from is right on. I think 
the risk it takes to be that theatrical is I support 100% the same way I support Spike Lee going crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, Remind me of really Spike Black Lee Klansman. Yeah. Um, the thing about this movie, yeah, people compare this to Spike Lee, I think just because Spike Lee is the most energetic and politically involved, like he is the easiest to point to energetic, politically involved black filmmaker. But like, I love that this has a West Coast energy. This is Oakland. This is not New York. Spike Lee is so New York. Spike Lee is fucking New York to his goddamn <laughs> bones. Like the celluloid that do the right thing was printed on might as well be Nick's orange. Like the shit is so New York. <laughs> and this movie has a completely different vibe. It has completely different slang. It's about a completely different world. It's about gentrification in a way that like Spike Lee couldn't really touch and do the right thing. He has the one scene with the Celtics Jersey man, but like this, this is so much more thorough about how complicated gentrification is and how, uh, it's it's just a fascinating movie and I love it so much and uh, yeah I don't know like this was the this was the most enthusiastic I got about any movie this year so it is my number one film of the year um, there is no movie that came out this year that changed the way I thought about film the way that has happened in previous years there's no movie that I like I watched it and then said okay I now have a new thing I know I like and I'm looking for aesthetically or thematically or whatever. Like there was no movie that fundamentally changed me as a film viewer in that way. Like even outside of 2018 films, I just never had that experience this year. Um, so I have to settle for the movie that I. You're not just settling. It's a great choice. Watch a hundred times in a row. I think yeah. these uh, the the duo here who wrote the script and stars in the film. Yeah. That they're already hard at work on a new script, and I can't wait to see what they do next. And I'm, I'm going to say the same thing I, I, know, I felt I about know. Moonlight and Barry Jenkins. It's like maybe this is it. I don't, like I, I fucking I, I, like I, I I'll watch David Diggs act in anything because David Diggs is an amazing actor. I just walk in there optimistic. I think maybe foolishly so sometimes, and it's gotten me into trouble. But I'm I'm excited for what they do. <laughs> right and comedy is even harder than yeah. drama to really master as a consistent uh, director. So I also can't wait for uh, what he's got up next. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, for and then Carlos sure. Lopez, I do want to spread some love to Carlos Lopez Estrada, who directed the film, um, who was not one of the screenwriters, but this he directs the fuck out of this movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, yeah, love, yeah. I love the, the way the car alarm is connected to the PTSD and mm. like there's a lot of really good moments and it's it has creative energy to burn um, in a script that's like this good you could have just shot it you know and told the story competently and that would have been one thing but Carlos Lopez Estrada definitely steps up to the plate and like knocks it out of the park and let me check what, what else has he done is this a first time film of his uh, I'm not. Then it should be most promising. I think he has done filmmaker. short. It looks like he has done short films uh, to this point, and he is a year younger than me. So that makes me feel. Ah! That makes me. No, nah, I don't feel bad. But anyway, dude is really good, and I'm, I'm excited about his next film as well. I'm excited uh, to hear what Brad's number have, one. Have we reached number one? We have reached number one. This is it. This is the moment. Yeah, it will. It's a little scary. It, it, it might be. It also might shock no one. Upgrade <laughs> to to know that yes, that, <laughs> Got it. Uh, so it, um, it's Aquaman. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay, of course he had comic book or or Roma. I'm going to go with Roma. You think? What do you think? 
I think it's probably Roma. It it yeah, it, it, it so might too. be it might be the film that absolutely blew me away and and left me leaving the theater slack jawed saying did did that just happen? Mm. We we talked a lot about the visuals before and mentioned the the sound design and Again, I'm going to be harping on this theater thing because I've never experienced it this way with any other movie, is that the sound design is so elaborate and complex that you are literally feel in the theater like things are going on behind you to the side. And it's not the way that a lot of action and and sci-fi movies just make uh, cars roar. It's the way uh, conversations are held just out of reach uh, or just out of hearing. And then it becomes clearer and clearer. Dogs are barking. You're getting a sense of an outside world that we're not seeing it on screen at that very moment. So if I think uh, Caron did the greatest use of 3D in film history with gravity, and I think that in this movie he does kind of an oral version That's, of it, 3D. Uh, in my yeah. mind, I have divided his films into these are the dramatic films, and these are the films where he is getting his jollies off technically. And I assume that because this was the former, it wouldn't be the latter. It is it sounds both. Like this is clearly him <laughs> trying, again, to push technology and experiment with the formal stuff. But it's also such a human story. It's, it's his mm-hmm. own story. He is the little boy in the movie. The set is a recreation of his childhood home in Mexico City. Apparently, he came from a, a well-off household. And, uh, and he got to know this maid, uh, who is the central figure. And we see her uh, through his eyes. We also see her own life and how she uh, gets into a relationship, gets pregnant, and uh, a lot of the drama of the movie is uh, based off of, of where she can go with this pregnancy. And so it, it's one of those rare movies where both the human story and the technical filmmaking are both working at such full steam that you just you just realized throughout, well, I am seeing something special. I would like to see this. I watched the first <laughs> 45 minutes at home and said, this is not how I do it. So. Well, you got in a week, it's going to open up exactly, at uh, Music exactly. Box. So that's so, what I'm going to be yeah. doing for sure. I wouldn't be surprised, yeah, if I, if I see it in that uh, beautiful theater with that sound. On a, on, a, on a beautiful print. And in 70, mil- 70 millimeter, which we haven't seen it in yet. That's true. That might be even more special. We'll see. We'll I see. heard stories about he literally, like, he recreated his childhood home, like, down to the last detail. Like, this, like the main sets of the film are recreations of where he grew up. Yeah, it... it- has this nostalgia about it, but it's not. It's a very specific nostalgia for him. So we're we're taken in because it's done so well. But yeah, the detail is apparently the the books that were on the shelf, everything, and we also see all these other kind of the environments that take place outside the screen, kind of like in in Itu Mama Tambien, how the uh, the romantic story is um, contrasted with the poverty that ha- that they see along this road trip. Uh, here, there's uh, this is a period of social unrest, 
and there's a lot of issues of class and things going on that that the characters are become caught up in they're not players in these situations but we see them and we see how they invade this story and Caron seems to really be uh interested in in this theme of how uh you know, you you cannot be isolated. The, the what happens in the outside world will affect you. What do you think, Jim? I think that it makes a lot of sense, and I also really just responded to the attention to detail again in the film. That you know, from that opening shot, that opening oh shot, just like yeah. when that when when the water spills in the plane goes through I mean it's just like I even said inside I was like I'd never seen that before I'd never seen just the composition and the way he chooses to frame certain things throughout the entire film is pretty remarkable pretty special it's it's not a film that I like found myself too emotionally walloped by hmm. which surprised me <laughs> but again it could be a, a case like you know, with um, if Beale Street could talk once I watch it again in a different setting, like kind of knowing what I'm in for and ex- what to expect, I might be more invested in this in this woman's uh, story. But I, 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 I do agree; it's it's one of the most incredibly designed films in terms of sound. Like I just w- watching it and hearing different things at different times from the left side to the right side, or the way it surrounds you. Is just unlike anything I've ha- I've heard before. Are 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 either of you like uh, Fellini aficionados? Not, not particular. I like uh, his acclaim. I like uh, Eight and a Half uh, Armor Chord, but he's not my go-to guy. He he's he's kind of somebody I really respect and appreciate some of his films more than others. But he but I, I'm not particularly attracted to him. So when I first saw the title and I first saw the poster and I first saw it was in black and white and mm-hmm. like the premise, yeah. My first thought was, oh, this is like a Fellini homage, and I have no idea if that's at all in the mix in this film or not. If it is, it's subtle because okay. uh, I mean there was a movie Fellini's Roma, right? But that's but a very different also film. right. There also is a neighborhood in Mexico City called right. Roma, right? Yeah. Okay, but it, you didn't like catch anything that's like, oh yeah, it's a little bit like La Dolce Vita or whatever. I didn't. I didn't get a, a Fellini esque vibe. Okay. Yeah. That was just like where my mind went initially, mm-hmm. and I was curious if. That was actually if there was, that was actually based on anything. <laughs> ah, should we read a list? We should read the rest we of the do. list. Oh, um, I think the next one is Ye- from Andrew James. That's right. Who was the first guest on uh, the first episode that Danny uh, Boyle? Al, Al and I hosted? Danny Boyle. That's yeah. right. So hey, Andrew, his number ten. Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Yeah, it's like <laughs> Leprechaun back to the hood. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Number nine, Private Life. Eight, Black Klansman. Seven, Sorry to Bother You. Mm-hmm. Six, Colette. Mm-hmm. Five, The Favorite. Four, Widows. Three, uh, okay, Solo, A Star <laughs> Wars Story. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Two, Blind Spotting. And number one, A Quiet Place. He's quite the Star Wars fan. 
And we're also going to insert his clip in which he talks about some of his favorite things about 2018 right here. Hey, happy holidays and happy new year, JL and PR and everyone listening from the Directors Club podcast. This is Andrew James, formerly of the Row 3 Cinecast. And I am normally would be here to give you my top 10 movies of the year. We're going to actually have a Cinecast coming up later. So we'll uh, we'll definitely go through those one by one later in January. And I've sent that list uh, in a link over to Patrick and Jim. If they want to read those, feel free. Go ahead. I thought I'd do something a little bit different and just give you my top 10. Well, it's actually top like 13 moments or things about 2018 in the world of movies that I loved. Uh, so here we go. Number 13 is the bathroom brawl in Mission Impossible Fallout. I didn't love that movie, but uh, that scene definitely stood out as one of the best action moments of the year. Uh, number 12, the one-take car conversation in Widows, in which uh, two of the main characters are having a conversation in the back of this limousine the camera is outside on the hood and it slowly pans across as the car is driving from one end of Chicago to the other well a section of Chicago and it just uh, it gives a lot of context as to the world building and also regarding the conversation and the characters and where they're going it's actually a pretty complex movie as a whole and it does it really well and that's in my top 10 for sure uh, number 11 the animation in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse I found that it really pushed boundaries and made everything super exciting. The movie itself was great. Um, I just hadn't ever seen animation quite like that before, certainly not in a big budget in the theater movie. So that animation was great. Number 10, the Live Aid concert at the end of Bohemian Rhapsody, um, re-realized with Rami Malek, of course, as Freddie Mercury. And uh, the movie itself was pretty good. I enjoyed it. Uh, you know, it's a pretty standard biopic. However, that final scene, the last 15 minutes or whatever, of live, going all out and doing all of Live Aid was just wonderful. So that was number 10. Number 9, Ethan Hawke. Pretty much everything he was in this year. Uh, he was in quite a few flicks. I really like Juliet Naked. I think, obviously, uh, his standout performance, though, was in First Reformed, which was one of my favorite movies of the year. So, yeah, Ethan Hawke in pretty much everything. Number eight, the recreation of the Overlook Hotel um, from The Shining in Ready Player One. Say what you will about Ready Player One, love it, hate it. That The look of the movie in that scene where they put everything um, just exactly how it was from uh, the, the Stanley Kubrick's The Shining the, for the Overlook Hotel, and I think they even go into the maze a little bit, is was really wonderful. I had a lot of fun in that sequence in that movie. Uh, number seven, this one's a little weird, but it's the Shout Factory release of the physical Blu-ray of Creepshow. Uh, I ordered it way back, like in May or something, and it finally showed up in late September, and it's just a gorgeous transfer of the movie and a really nice packaging, and Creepshow is one of my favorite horror movies of all time. So um, Shout Factory... There's a lot of DVDs I could go over. I got into physical media pretty big this year and a lot of boutique labels and sites releasing things um, that are far beyond uh, criterion. There's a lot more stuff out there, I've realized. Anyway, this was one of them. Wonderful 
when that showed up in my mailbox that day. Number six, uh, there's a movie called Game Night starring Jason Bateman and uh, uh, Rachel McAdams. And in it's, I thought it was really well done, nicely directed, very refreshing studio uh, comedy. You don't get a ton of those. And there were a couple, three of those this year. But anyway, one scene in Game Night is where the two of them, uh, well, Rachel McAdams is forced to remove a bullet from Jason Bateman's arm. And it's hilarious. You can even find it on YouTube. But um, it's just this little one-off scene. That is, it's great. I love it. Uh, number five. Yargos Lanthimos channeling his inner Kubrick in The Favorite. The Favorite is not my favorite movie of the year, but like I'll probably talk about later, um, I think objectively speaking, it's it's got to be the best or one of the best movies of the year. Also, Rachel Weisz's costumes in that, but oh my God, it felt like I was watching a Kubrick movie again. It was so wonderful to be in the theater for that. Um, number four, the bear, quote-unquote, bear scene in Annihilation. If you've seen Annihilation, you know what I'm talking about, and it's amazingly creepy. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, number three, Tony Collette in Hereditary. Hereditary's great horror movie of the year. It's a lot of fun. 90% of that is Tony Collette's pure awesomeness. I've never been a huge fan of Tony Collette. She's fine in this and that. Wow, did she stand out for me as the performance of the year. Um, check that out. Number two, now we're getting into my nostalgia and a little bit more personal picks, but it would be the moment where Han and Chewie sit down in the Falcon as pilot and co-pilot for the first time just before the castle run. I know a lot of people were down on Solo. I loved it. I had a lot of fun with it. Um, and that moment, along with John Williams, they, they put in just the right amount of John Williams <clears throat> bits from the original trilogy stuck in there. And when Han and Chewie both sit down and kind of look at each other and everybody knows it feels right. Ah, loved it. Great. My favorite characters in the Star Wars universe are Han Solo, Chewbacca, and the Millennium Falcon. And that movie is chock full of those three things. So I was in heaven pretty much the whole time. And last but not least, the uh, number one moment for me in, in 2018 was the Emily Blunt scene in A Quiet Place uh, where she has to give birth in the bathtub and do it quietly. Um, not only her having to do that, but all of the things going around uh, outside and around the house in that moment. It was wonderful. It's my favorite movie of the year. Um, and that scene alone was just amazing. So uh, I, it was really clever in terms of giving us something to be suspenseful about and on edge of your seat. And it, that did it amazingly well. So those are 13 things that I loved seeing in the theaters this year. Like I said, if you want my top 10, Patrick and Jim can certainly go through and read them. I sent them a link in the email. So if they feel like doing that, feel free to do that. Um, and that's going to be it. So uh, feels good to be recording once again. And uh, even though if it's not on my own podcast, it's quite an honor to be on the Directors Club with Jim and Patrick. Doing it for years. I keep listening. So thanks, guys. Have a great new year, and I look forward to hearing uh, what you thought of 2018 in the cinema. Take care, all. Cheers. Cool clip. 
I, God, that was long. I, I know. We were all we're getting so far into this, and we had to. Uh, yeah, it was a, it was a good, you gotta you gotta yeah. lose that dude's number, no, Jim. No, no, you no, gotta no. lose that dude's number. He's, he's, a, he's a, real a good guy. Drain he's on a good podcast. guy. I'm tired of him. I'm tired of his greasy mitts getting all over this podcast. <laughs> oh. Go ahead, Jim. Read the next list from uh, another longtime listener, Mindy Whitaker. Number ten is uh, support the girls. Number nine is bind bl- blind spotting. Number eight is black Klansman. Number seven is burning. Number six is Roma. Number five is Relaxer. Wow. Number four is uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Number three, First Man. Number two, Widows. And number one, Suspiria. And the final list we received was from my partner, Regina, who said, I didn't get a chance to see too many movies this year or read anything for Consistent Panda Bear Shape, which is their film blog, because I've been super busy with theater stuff. So here's my top five. Number five, Relaxer. Number four, Support the Girls. Number three, Little Woods. Number two, Shoplifters. And number one, Blind Spotting. <gasps> wow. There's only one more thing left to do, Jim. What the hell is it? Uh, it's, it's time to take the recording equipment, toss them into the lake, and never speak of <laughs> this podcast again. <laughs> or you could discuss your number one film. I have to, don't I? I think so. I'm scared. I think that's where we got to go. It's that time. I'm scared. All I don't right. know if I can handle it. Go ahead. There's too much pressure. There's too much stress. I can't do it. Nope. It's over. Let's let's end the podcast. All right, fair enough. <laughs> Thanks everybody for listening. J- Jim's number one will be announced next year. At <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah, right. You know, um, you know, you can check your local listings uh, for my number one film. Uh, hopefully, it plays somewhere at some point in the future. It's a uh, it's a movie that really snuck into me. First time I saw it, I was messaging my friend Bill Ackerman and be like, "I don't know if I like this movie. I really don't. I don't." Mm. I'm really struggling with it. And then I think, you know, a lot of my favorite movies I tend to struggle with a little bit. (laughs) I tend to question it. I tend to think about it. I tend to dream about it. I tend to do research on it. I tend to read the short story that it's based on uh, by Hakuri Murakami. And it's from a Japanese short story called Barn Burning. And, and the that is film. Ready Player One. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. I'm Yay, surprised that nobody, we got there. I'm surprised it didn't make any. I said list Ready ever. Player One on this podcast. All right, we're we done. Did it. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, What's the film called? Um, it's a film called Burning. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I said, I struggled with it. Watched it again, and of course, had a completely different reaction to it. It's just so damn good. <laughs> and, yep. and 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 it's but it's so mysterious but it's also really um oh it's it breaks my, there's a scene that takes place in a restaurant that really breaks my heart um in which the uh, the female character in this confides in 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 both of these men who are very different in how they approach life and emotion that she just wants to disappear or that she wanted to be like the sunset and completely disappear. And kind of knowing how things play out, that scene struck me even more on a second viewing. And it's still a really enveloping, crazy, noir mystery at, at the center. Again, we talk about a film that manages to be a little, you know encased in these genre mechanics as a noir mystery of sorts, but... I also realize that you know the lead character here, uh, whose name escapes me. He's he's really impassive, 
but I really feel like that's kind of a defense mechanism on his part. He really wants to push people away because of what's happened with his father. He doesn't trust as easily. He's got, you know, familial issues, and obviously he lost his mother. Well, she disappeared. Well, she <laughs> left them, I should say. And there's these financial woes and personal heartbreak. Uh, a lot going on within this character that sort of causes him to be the way he is. Um, and I understood that, uh, especially on the second viewing, like why his home is full of dirty dishes and old photographs and Trump on the background, uh, you know, just while he's doing other things like brushing his teeth. I think little moments like that speak volumes, including this moment where he goes back and talks with um, Jaime, the female lead here, uh, one of her former co-workers, and she says to him, there is no country for women. And I really think that says a lot to why she vanished or, you know, why they have to do what they had to do for their profession um, or even why maybe Jaime wound up in debt and decided to disappear. There's just a lot of questions unanswered a lot of things presented here. It's really an enigma that does say a lot about toxic male envy and um, uh, just uncertainty about the future and just being a damaged person in, in general. And that damaged person just happens to be a really um, difficult person, <laughs> you know. Uh, and I sort of responded to that. Movies that portray introverts that are not, are very socially awkward kind of get to me. Because <laughs> um, that's sometimes how I perceive myself. But at the same time, it's like, I think I can communicate better than this guy. But Because like at one point, after this incredible sequence that takes place at his farmhouse... among this is the, the three Miles Davis sequence. That the we Miles Davis sequence, to, yeah. yeah, is just one of the highlights of the year for me. And uh, he sort of decides to cast away this woman in a way by you know by chastising her by saying nobody takes their clothes off like that only prostitutes and it made me so angry at him for having that response but he's just also just really he doesn't know how to process his own emotions and he's also like really struggling with his relationship with this person because he's also convinced that they're not going to end up together. She's going to end up with this other guy because he has more money and he seems more confident. And it's just a really interesting uh, triangle between these three characters that I think a lot about. And I also think it has a lot to say about um, class issues with this, this, you know, this guy who lives in a farm and is struggling um, with a lot going on in his personal life, but also financially and being strangely envious of this guy who may or may not be what he seems to be. And it's also a film that I would like to talk about more um, in, in, in regards to how it plays out and how it ends, but also I don't want people to know it's exactly 100% how this film ends because I want you to be surprised. So... It's it just really f- freaked me out <laughs> by the end, and it really like got to me in general as an experience. And there's certain shots of fire and certain 
segments that I'll never forget. And I, I plan to write a little bit more about this movie, especially after reading the short story that's based on it. There's a lot, a lot of interesting ideas brewing throughout. Um, and all three performances, I think, are great in their own way. There's so much that's unresolved. Unresolved, and yes. But instead of feeling like you, you're missing something or have been cheated, I think that, in this case, that makes the film last so much longer in us. Yeah, because sometimes the way I look at the world is that I wonder if this is just a mystery that I can never understand. The way things are, the way people interact sometimes, I don't understand it. And I like that this film kind of conveys that. Like, I will never know certain things. I mean, you can have theories, and the film, I think, suggests one version of the way things played out. Do you think it's ambiguous? I do. Yeah? I mean, I I think it gives hints. I think you you can leave the film taking some clues and saying well probably is this but but you're you're not i don't think you're sure i I think there's enough doubt that you have to kind of mull it over a little bit and said well that that seems like what happened but did it really yeah i think that's what we're meant to question too again i i i think uh my friend bill is hinting at is this an unreliable narrator situation with this lead character? Unreliable narrators are really well, hard to do in film. Yeah, I mean, you got but a just, camera there. It's not first persons, and therefore, like, did everything play out as we see it necessarily? That's what I think he's. Hint- it's almost like a Mulholland Drive kind of situation, where is. <sighs> it's hard to talk about, but mm-hmm. what happens at the end of that really happen, or is that just imagined? Or is that part of the novel that he's writing? Although we never really see him, he just sits at a typewriter at one scene, not really writing anything. He's struggling to write something. So it's hard to really know exactly. That's why I think the ending is kind of ambiguous. Because I'm not even 100% sure. Huh. Interesting. It's an interesting movie. Yeah, I just like, it's... It would have never occurred to me that the movie was even suggesting that, like, the events of the film were part of a novel he was writing. Yeah. Or taking place in his own mind. Like, what... Is there, I don't is know there if, evidence that, like, I contradicts so. it being real? Is there I something that... Or is that just, like, a pet theory? Like, what, what That's suggests a theory. That's that a it's theory. Taking, what's take, what, suggest, what about the film suggests to you that it's taking place in his mind? I don't know if I believe that necessarily. I just think it's an interesting way to look at it. And I think okay, I mean, it's an interesting way to look at Ferris Bueller by pretending that Cameron <laughs> is part of, like, that Ferris is his imagination. Yeah, but, yeah. Like, it doesn't no, hold any water. Like, I don't, I don't think there's any you're, evidence. If you're talking about it as, like, an actual additive part of making the movie better, I'm curious as to what, what even lends credence to that. It's a good question. I don't think there's any and, actual and, and for me, that's not even the main point of ambiguity. I think... Uh, the main character's assumptions that lead to the end of the film mm-hmm. are also ambiguous. Right, yes. I, that, that was what I originally the thought we were talking okay. about with ambiguous. That's, that's what that's I was also, talking about. <laughs> that also does yeah. not strike me as ambiguous whatsoever. Um, but, like, that's... Whatever, that's me. But, like... Well, certainly when he's rustling through the, the cabinet in the bathroom and yeah, finds like, something... Yeah, like, I don't know how else you can interpret that. I mean, it's how I interpreted it. Right. I mean, there was a question on Twitter, like, did this thing happen... And my answer was, yes, I think it did. 
And okay. my answer was probably. <laughs> probably. <laughs> but I do think so. But I just think it's fascinating. I think it has this really interesting tension brewing throughout the entire film with all these people, and including just this character sort of being consumed by what happened to this person? Mm-hmm. Why did she disappear? So Where did she go? We're talking around that. Like this is the podcast we generally go into spoilers. But if you guys want to give people more of a chance to see this, I do. I don't want don't the want final us, scene. And you don't want us to discuss in detail the, what we're talking about. I can go ahead with that. Um, I will say that you should probably tell people not to watch the trailer then because the trailer also pretty much gives it away. Mm-hmm. And I saw this trailer oh, really? like three times before different movies at the Music Box and the trailer goes through the entire story of the film including that The final ending, scene? Inclu- not the final scene oh. but like the final the, the, the thing that we're not talking about. <laughs> That's unfortunate. That is, <laughs> that is in the trailer. Really and, I've seen, and I saw that trailer like yeah three times before I saw the film. So like I went in thinking already knowing that's what this movie is about. And so for me, this was like one gear and it never left it. I kept waiting. Like by the time it finally got to that ending, number one, there was no ambiguity because it was already the way I was reading the whole film. Cause that's, I mean, which is like, that's also the, maybe that's an invalid way of viewing the film is like assuming that a way marketing sells a movie equals the way a movie is. But like, and again, like I, I, there's a thing I want to say, but if I say it, I think I'm going to transgress into the thing that you're that you don't want to talk about, and I want to respect that. Um, I found this movie to be one of the more disappointing movies of the year. I also saw the first. I want to say like, so 2018 was a year I decided I was going to watch a bunch of Asian films, and I didn't, I didn't, wasn't able to stick through that the way I wanted to because uh, the video store I was working at closed, and suddenly my lifestyle got a lot less lax, and I was had access to a lot less films. But I did watch like the first 30 minutes of Secret Sunshine, which is a previous film by this director that is on the Criterion Collection, hmm. and I thought it was not good. I thought it was a similar thing where it kind of stayed in one gear and didn't change things up. And that's the first 30 minutes, so like it totally could be an amazing movie that I would love if I had just stuck through, but I didn't. Of the three movies I've seen from that, that is actually my least favorite. Yeah. I think poetry is the better one. Yeah, yeah. I've heard good things about poetry. I'd be interested. Check it out. Um I'm 100% so, on board with this director. So to not talk about the ending, I will also just say, and also not to like try to invalidate your feelings or whatever, like, I really hated the main character. I thought the main character was such a drip. I thought he was just such a nothing. Like He was so pathetic, but like the movie wanted me to empathize with him, but he was just like, he was, mm. he was just, he just felt like he was just moping all the time and just had nothing to offer any given moment. And it was just like... I- I don't like this guy. I, I, I think that was essential, though, to how we're supposed to relate to the movie. I, I, I think it's his passivity mm-hmm. that puts a lot of this in motion. And and yes, if he could communicate, that would make him an easier person for us to watch as an audience, hmm. but it would also solve a lot of the problems he has throughout the movie. Right. No, that's but like that. That was the. And that's where the frustration is, yeah. <laughs> and like as a as a ostensible movie with thriller elements, let's say, like that was a frustrating way to go through it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm, I'd, I'd be interested because I it never occurred to me that any of that would be ambiguous, and I didn't see anything that challenged my view of it. Uh, going in, I'd be interested to watch it again and see if maybe it 
is more interesting. You said the first time you saw it, you weren't that into it. So yeah. maybe I, I found myself way more into it. Um, and also having the, the short story as context was really interesting. I mean, it's, it's not very different necessarily. It certainly doesn't have it doesn't the same take two ending. hours to read. Probably. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't have the same ending either. So, but I just found that I just, I just, I don't know. Like this one really haunted me, <laughs> you know, by the end I was, Dreaming about it and thinking about it and wondering more about it. And there's also some just really amazing the images. Imagery, yeah, there's for sure. For that sure. sequence that we've already talked about with with her sort of stripping at the sunset and the way it, the scene is sort of just them hanging out and it kind of slides into that moment without really yeah. signaling that it's going into like that. That's a great sequence. There's there's cool things about this movie, um, but. You know, I liked it more than eighth grade. <laughs> I, I, on my on my list, I had it in between eighth. I liked it more than eighth grade, but I liked it less than Creed two. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I'll, I'll I'll give another shot one day. But I uh, are you sticking to your you're done with the year approach now, or because you always say a, that at the end of this episode, a, I'm done with 2018. I don't want to watch any more movies. Well, it's just like I have spent the last month. Having anxiety over him, I watched enough 2018 movies. What about all these movies I haven't seen? I that, still feel that way. You know, like so, like I'm done with that feeling, and therefore I don't. It doesn't feel urgent. Right. But you do have one more to go. What's that? Roma. Oh, that's right. That's <laughs> yeah, right. I guess so. Um, I don't know what I'm going to watch in 2019. I would like to not do an episode on Sage and Suzuki. That would be my preference. <laughs> not to have a three-month yeah. period where anytime I don't watch the Sage and Suzuki movie, I feel guilty. But every time I do watch the Sage and Suzuki movie, I feel bored. Like, that's a bad film dilemma. Um, I listened back to one of our year-end episodes where we made resolutions, and I feel horrible. You ne- you never, like, fought, like you uh, two days later, it completely like- loses your... Loses your memory. That's why they say not to make resolutions because that happens. Yeah, but well, I, I drank. Need to, I, need I drank soda today, even though I'm not supposed to. So I'm already. I need to watch more o- Ozu movies. Oh, so. those are wonderful. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I could, I could recommend some Ozu movies. Too. Yeah, I can recommend an order. Let's okay. say because don't can I just watch Tokyo Story first? No, I would not do that. Why? Tokyo Story is dry. <laughs> And uh, like all of his movies are kind of dry and, and slow paced, and that's like important for how they work. But like Tokyo Story, if you sit there saying this is a masterpiece, one of the greatest films ever made, I'm going to sit down and absorb why it's a masterpiece and one of the greatest films ever made. It's really a tough sit. Hmm. I would say start with Late Spring, which it, again, like they're all dry, they're all slow. But like Late Spring is a little more narrow in scope. It's a little easier to follow emotionally and thematically. Um, you'll get a feel for him, and then you can go into Tokyo Story. And his silent films have a more accessible yes, tone, so they're a little more comic. Uh, the, uh, the one I was oh. born, but is the one I'd recommend to start with. That uh, Story of Floating Weeds is a good. Uh, that's is that silent, or is that just early? That, no, I, I think, think that it's is silent. silent. That is yeah. silent. Story of Flowing. Because he remade it in, yes. in color and sound. Floating yeah. Weeds also color. The color Ozu movies are better, I think, than the black and white. Oh, really? I, his use of color is astounding. Although, like, not all, but a lot of his like most famous and highly regarded works are in black and white. But I think his color movies are better looking. Huh. He He's very good at just having one object that completely dominates your view. Um, so, but anyway, I would say late spring and then Tokyo story. I know one film you'll probably look forward to in 2019 
and it's directed by uh, a guy we haven't heard from in a very long time. And uh, he's made one of my new favorite... The Modern Ocean is not happening, Jen. We gotta, <laughs> we gotta let that go. <laughs> I want that to happen now. I know. I just have no... Uh, we, got, oh, we already talked about this on the Halloween episode. Shane Carruth, get out of, get out of films while you can. <laughs> no, it's from the guy who did Martha Marcy May Marlene. He's finally got a follow-up. Really? Sean... Uh, Durkin... I want to say. I think that's correct. <laughs> probably... probably I don't no. know how I remember these random names. But. This is the uh, 2018 year-end episode, and we do a slow fade, I guess, on this conversation. <laughs> is that how we're going to end it? Do we have any yeah, final but... notes on 2018? It was pretty good. That's all right. I liked it. It's a pretty good year. Ditto. Very happy. I... I'm happy that we were all here to share mm-hmm. this experience together and uh, bask in the glory that was 2018. And I saw less movies I was enthralled by this year than like any previous year I can think of. So I, this was a bad film year for me. I hope that that changes in 2019. Um, and I'm that I'm not, lose, I'm not losing my interest in film. Cause that would really bum me out. But in general, I, I keep a list on letterbox of the four star and higher movies that I see for the first time. Mm-hmm. And in 2016, I saw like 61 in 2017. I saw 43 and then this year I saw 30. So like, oh! it's just like I feel the joy and surprise and newness of cinema like getting less potent every year. And at some point, I'm, not, I'm just going to be like, I don't know. It's all I, good. None of it was good except for Inside Out and The Lobster. That's where I'm going to be. <laughs> I love both those films. But I, I'm, I'm waiting for the next Oscar for Hottie movie to get me back into it. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's coming out soon, right? Yeah, so, I mean, I think it's a 2018 film, but it doesn't come out here till. Uh, I fe- saw it at the film festival. Oh, how was it? Uh-oh. <laughs> it was Noah's separation? No. Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. That guy's made like four films since then, right? Like, yeah, that guy's been, yeah. I haven't seen any of I've loved films. every single one of yeah. them. Yeah, okay. Pen- like Penelope Cruz and Javier Bardem. Mm. It's all right. It's fine. Okay. It's not. I mean, they're fine. They're good. Right. They're very good, as always, but I didn't think so much of the film, unfortunately. Sorry. I don't want to end on a low note, on a, like disappointing note. <laughs> Let's end on something positive. Uh, what, what's, what would be positive? I saw Ready Player One. That was a bad I'm one. not sure that's a positive. <laughs> that's not <All> positive. Right. <laughs> Patrick, where can people find you on Letterboxd? That's positive in my book, because I enjoy reading your reviews. At the moment, uh, they can find me at Patrick Rapol, but... Oh, any, that's cool. Any day now, I might just delete my letterbox. No, don't do that. <laughs> don't, I haven't had a chance to read your reviews yet. Come on. <laughs> don't do that. I, how else will I see you or hear from you or know you? I don't know. You have my number. That's true. <laughs> Actually call you and be like, hey, Patrick, let's have, a, let's have a talk over the phone. Every time someone leaves a comment on one of my reviews that's like, oh, I can't believe you don't like this movie. You're so crazy. I'm like, <laughs> maybe. What if I just deleted this whole thing? <laughs> and I made... Posi- I made I made sure that you knew that you did it before I did. Like, I, like, I'm like goodbye forever, and then like wait an hour to make sure they've seen this comment, and then delete the whole thing. That would be my. I move. get closer and closer to deleting Facebook. Why haven't you? I don't know because I'm a slave. <laughs> I can't. I can't fucking That's disconnect. A I can't disconnect from all that. Mm-hmm. How many people would be disappointed? Oh, no pictures of Jim's cat. Shit. You know what it was, you know was a good year for? It was a good year for, for video games. Tetris Effect came out. Oh, you told me about that. I got to show you this game, Jim. It's the new Tetris. It's great. <laughs> 
<laughs> you play Tetris and then music happens. Oh, okay. It's great. Everyone should play Tetris Effect. If you don't have a console that That's plays the Tetris best Effect, you should buy, uh, buy one just for Tetris Effect. It's Tetris, but music happens. Two thumbs up. Hey, Brad, where can we find you? Well, you could find me on Letterboxd at cool. Brad S. Or at the Director's Club. So, Directors, Directors Club, Club podcast. This very feed. This, you're already here, so you, you probably mm-hmm. know, but uh, we've uh, started to schedule our next year's offering. Uh, Al and I, we're going to start out in January with Steve McQueen. Wow. The, the director. Not, you know. Oh, yeah. We could do <laughs> right. an Actors Club. Indeed. Yeah, but, uh, and, but before that, we do That's have. films, right? It is four films, okay. yeah. But we do have two bonus episodes coming up. I, I mentioned heard. we're doing The Other Side of the Wind and Roma. Wow. That's cool. And you can certainly listen to uh, Patrick and I talk about Suspiria and Halloween if you like, because that was a good episode and a good conversation. And, um, yeah, I'm at Letterboxd, too. I'm there. I rate movies at Now Playing Jim. It's true. The rumors are true. <laughs> I'm also at Twitter... And I don't know about Facebook anymore. I'll eventually get away. I swear. I'm making an oath. It's my New Year's resolution. Um, no, it's it's fine. I'm 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 happy. I'm things are going well. I work at a library. Cool. And uh, you can find me there helping people with computers if they need help. That is all, folks. Please stay tuned to this wonderful feed. And this incredibly cool podcast, and I'm glad that it's stuck around for eight years. Thank you to Patrick, and thank you to Brad and Al for keeping it alive and thriving for all this time. It's a true honor. And uh, thank you to all the listeners and all the emails we got regarding the show. Um, Have a great 2019, everybody. I am Jim. Goodbye. Bye. (laughs) All right, cool. That was awesome. Okay. <laughs> Five hours and 45 that was, minutes. That was, <laughs> it was fun. I always look forward to this every year. I do too. Can we do it again tomorrow? So would you teach me a movie?